Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that this week's digital noise has been canceled because apparently North Korea is upset about some things we might say about them in this episode. Are we ready to record? I've got all the rotten cabbages and all the Kim Jong-un jokes all lined up. It'll be hilarious. Um, Richard, we got some threats from some group called the Guardians of the Galaxy. I, 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 can't, I don't have time to bother with that. I've got some hilarious Russian starvation, uh, Russian and North Korean starvation jokes lined up. It'll be awesome. <laughs> but we, we, what if they hold? We got threatened. They could blow up the, the one of us offices. They didn't already. You know what? Now that I think about it, they are insured. Yeah. Beer. Beer. It's the Richard and Chris episode where we regularly fight off the kittens from destroying things in the background while we record. <laughs> Get away from there, you bitch! <laughs> okay, your cat is now actually eating the cable. Actually <laughs> eating the cable leading to the television. This episode could could end, ladies and gentlemen, with the short bzzz sound. I, I need a bunch of like a uh, uh, um, soft bally things to throw at him. You mean balls? Well, yes, but you know, like a bean bag. I need a whole bag. Basket of bean bags just for the purpose of, of making sure the, the cats. Cat. Oh, you know what works? Laser lights. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to this instead. Oh my god, there it goes. Goodbye. Wait, <laughs> wait, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd the red dot go? <laughs> One day I will get you, red dot. <laughs> One day, red dot. This Chris is how I says. picture Kim Jong un sitting in his house, but with Austin. <laughs> One day I will get you, Austin. Speaking of that, uh, uh, just to say real quick before we we go any further, of course, this is the day they canceled the interview because of threats that may or may not have come from Korea, no matter what the CIA is I've saying. I've seen it, so uh, fuck you all. Uh, uh, but it made me laugh that the Alamo Draft House, who was going to show it no matter what, now Sony has actually pulled the print all together, and they're like, well, you know what? We're going to play Team America instead. <laughs> and I'm like... You're awesome. Officially, fuck yeah. <laughs> that was officially, fuck you. <laughs> so, so, yes, if Austin disappears in, into a brief blinding woof of light, you know what happened. Well, they kind of knew if, probably by this time if anybody was going to be the ones to put their middle finger up, it was going to be Austin. Yep. Yeah. Considering our fantastic fest celebration, what, three years ago, yes. was like pointedly making fun of North Korea. <laughs> yeah, why didn't they get more upset about Red Dawn? Because they knew no one was going to see it. Ooh, huh. <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about this week on Digital Noise films that maybe you'll never see, maybe you will, but we've got some really good stuff, some really mediocre stuff. Uh, I don't know if we have anything that's out and out bad this week, no, do we? No, I think, we've, I think we've, we're not yeah, dropping a, some kind of Christmas goose egg on you. Seems so. like a pretty safe bet this yeah. week of uh, lots of titles. We, of course, if you go to the actual oneofus.net page, you'll see a bunch of links to all of these movies that Intelligent Shows will be talking about as images. If you click on those, it'll bring you to the assorted uh, uh, Amazon pages for those items where if you buy those items from our links we get a little bit of a kickback which is always nice but here is the little extra hidden bonus information on that if you care about oneofus.net and you want us to keep going on with all these great podcasts and shows when you're doing your Christmas shopping or any shopping at all if it's something you plan on buying on Amazon go first to a digital noise page and click on one of those links and surf from that link that open up to whatever else you're looking forward to buy on Amazon buy it there and we still get a kickback as long as you started from one of our links because economics is awesome seemingly 
Yeah, I'm not even sure why that's a thing that they do, but I don't want to fight it. No, <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with it. That, yeah. That's the cherry on top of the, of the mixed nuts. <laughs> also, of course, we've got subscriptions for regular listeners. We've just started, uh, we're on our, what, fourth show, I think, last week, a regular show called The Breakfast Pub that airs every Monday morning where Brian Salisbury and I do sum up all the week's news in our drunken and irreverent way because so what it's breakfast we're gonna get drunk scarcely coherent (laughs) and we take a long nap afterwards uh like and for instance last week we sometimes uh sub out people of course and as necessities last week martin thomas and i did it so now is the time to get a subscription to check that stuff out and we're also going to have more commentaries all sorts of neat stuff on the way so please do that but in the meantime i didn't actually get any letters this week because everything was kind of crazy sorry you can make up a question if you want uh, okay, I'll do that. Okay. Um, huh. <laughs> How many cats does it take? Favorite, what, what, would, what would be your favorite politically provocative film? Politically provocative film? Yeah. That is an interesting question. Um, huh. Jeez, just off the top of my head, I don't know. Maybe, like, maybe I Am Cuba or something like that? Oh, that's a good one. Um... Wow. I mean, okay, if you were to flat out rule out anything that has to do with Germany during World War II. No, no, I'll let you throw those in as well. Yeah, but no, I feel like that's, like, too obvious. Shoo. Uh, I tend to go with, like, a, like, I, I tend to be more interested, ultimately, with stuff that's pointing the finger back in America, because this is my country, and I want to make sure it's functioning as good as possible. To me, that's patriotism. It's yeah. not not questioning your country. It's doing just that. It's questioning it, going, are you sure this is the right way we should be doing things? Um, but that being said, nothing's coming to mind right off the top of my head, and I'm not sure Oliver Stone's JFK is, strictly speaking, reliable with its facts. I, I'm personally going to go with uh, the 1942 Ernest Lubitsch To Be or Not To Be. Oh, that's a great movie. Which is okay, so of, that's the World War II one. Which is one of the first movies that, um, that makes Nazi Germany look really horrible and talks about... The fact that there is ba- there's clearly bad stuff going on there, and doesn't just make them cartoon bad guys, which were still going on at that point, but says you know these are people there are people here living under really horrible circumstances, and we're not going to be able to just walk away from this at the end of World War Two, and that was Lubitsch's point. And that's a great film because it really does say, hey, we're going to have a challenge here because this isn't just we're at war with them. Yeah, this, there, this is something where there is a country that is that is broken. It's also a great comedy. It's a great film. And if you've never seen it, the Mel Brooks remake is actually really, really good and really charming. And kind of, I think it's the, the last really great film Mel Brooks made. I'm going to go out there. Fair Nobody enough. remembers it because it's him kind of playing it a lot straighter than he normally does, but right. it's really good. Okay, fair enough. I remember the original more so than the remake. but yeah. um, uh, because Mainly because we got the Criterion edition sent to us last mm. year, and it was good. And it was good. Uh yeah, I mean, we just saw Selma, which was terrific, I thought. Really, I don't know if... You know, I guess you didn't get to see that I yet. I haven't seen that yet. Really good. I can't believe... It was like, why did it take this long for anyone to make a theatrical release film about MLK's life? I'm really kind of baffled by that. But it's there, and they actually did a damn good job with it. Uh, I will say this film, even probably, though it's... It probably issues with the uh, the King family, because they're very protective of their intellectual property. It could have been that. And they all hate each other. So it's very hard to get them to all agree on anything. So. Um, this is not overtly political, but certainly is about the 
like it, it's more about like how things happen behind the scenes sometimes politically than a direct thing that happened. The movie called Closet Land with uh, uh, Madeline Stowe and Alan Rickman, oh, only yeah. two person bottle film in the same room where he is. It's like it, they never say where this is happening. It could be anywhere. But she's a children's storybook writer who's been abducted in the middle of the night by her government. And who wants that, her to admit that her children's stories are actually allegories, allegories for revolution against the government and that she's been hiding messages to, you know, revolutionaries inside yeah. these stories. When the truth is, they are just stories. And in fact, if anything's hidden in there, it's that she was abused as a child. Yeah. And she starts coming to terms with this, like, you know, opening up her own past as this guy is psychologically torturing her. Wonderful little movie with a great soundtrack by Philip Glass and certainly one that's about the futility of torture. I, I would also advise people to, uh, to go back and revisit uh, The Ides of March, which I don't think got enough play at the time. It's such a great movie it's that great nobody paid any attention to. hated for some unknown reason. Yeah. And uh, that's a really fine little movie, which is... Uh, having watched it with some people who actually are professional political <laughs> fixers and, and campaign people... Um, it is generally regarded by them as the most accurate film about what the campaign trail is like, which was really fascinating to see. They go, oh, yeah, no, that stuff's absolutely spot on. Right. And not something like, you know, Wag the Dog, which I think is written so large that it's like, eh. I mean, I enjoyed Wag the Dog. I definitely did. And the script is, the dialogue is wonderful in it, but in trying to make a larger point, it's like it's pushing too hard. It it does hit you in the face. It's it's so hard trying to be on the nose. Very true. Anyway. Uh, uh, oh, and Charlie Wilson's War is a good one, too. Ah, yep. Very good. Keep anyway, to Clooney. Uh, my turn to ask you a question. Yes? When you were a kid, what cinematic hero did you want to be so desperately you could taste it? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yep. Really? Yep. Because yep. he was the British guy. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> done. 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 I just done. So did you... That probably explains why you like the prequels, yep. which was inexplicable before now. Or, uh, <laughs> also, um... Sean Connery in A Bridge Too Far. Oh, wow. Because okay. he played one of the British paratroopers. My grandfather was actually a paratrooper who was at the uh, who, who was involved in the raids that uh, those films were based on. He uh, actually landed a glider uh, at Nijmegen. True story. Huh. You have this vision as a kid of, like, you know, parachuting in to save the troops as they yell out, Help us, Richard Whitaker, you're our only hope. No. It's more kind of like because I love the thing about it is uh, about um, uh, Bridge Too Far is that it is it, it's almost war as as hard work. It's, it's not, I should hope so. There's no but it's it's like the anti heroic war movie. Everybody, if you've never seen it, it's a great film. Um, I have. It's been a while. It's it used to show in the UK every every Christmas is or, or Easter. It would alternate with Jason and the Argonauts. Um, <laughs> seriously, you get one or the other every 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 uh, major British holiday. Um, but it really is, you know, war is as incredibly hard work and it's, you know, weird and erratic and it's like different things are happening in different places in the battlefield and you don't know what's happening and you might get like a, a brief indication that something's happening. But all these stories are happening in isolation and you think, okay, that's really how it would work. And it's, it's one of the best ensemble pieces. It's an amazing cast. But Sean Connery's just so great in that because, he, you know, he's not, I'm cooler than thou, Sean. It's like, right. you know, I'm harried and hardened and just uh, this is this is tough work but uh, yeah i had that kind of family relationship to the the whole story as well uh i guess when i was a kid it was i was always very like 
quick to say to de- proclaim that something was my identity now and everybody better respect it. And, you are uh, not Batman. <laughs> right? No, I never wanted to be Batman. Or Aquaman. Well, actually, I want to be Batman now, uh, but, like, you know, with the super suits that let you do stuff so you don't have to be out of breath all the time. Um, <laughs> but when I was a kid, the first thing, like, I saw 10,000 years BC, and I was like, that's it, I'm going to be a paleontologist. For years, I was like, I'm going to be a paleontologist. Give me all the dinosaur shit you got. Until I actually read a book about actual paleontology and went, <laughs> wow, that is dull as dirt. Uh, okay, so then Indiana Jones comes out. And I go, that's it. I'm going to be an archaeologist. You know, that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight Nazis and dig up treasures and caves with lots of traps. I'm going to be Indiana Jones until I read up on what actual archaeology was. I was like, wow, this is a lot like paleontology. It's really dull as dirt. I'm not going to do that. So a couple years later, Ghostbusters comes out. and It's like, that's it, people. I am going to be a parapsychologist. I'm, I'm going to be all about chasing ghosts and discovering what the reality of these things are until I read a book about it and went, oh, wait, it's all bullshit. There is no such <laughs> thing. So there's no – any job you do is just absolute nonsense. Uh, <laughs> sorry, believers. Your, I apologize. You might be right. We're basically research-based and, I, and woefully misguided. I, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's still kind of my life. Ironically, all the jobs I wanted were very – Action oriented, and now I pretty much just sit on a couch. <laughs> so something got lost along the way. Yeah. What was the action packed version of being a film critic? That is an interesting question. Well, you Mercenary? know, they made an action series out of the librarian, so. True. You know, maybe if it True. turned out that there was like, like, you take a look at that film Forgotten Silver and go with that as like a concept that there's like this director that made a whole series of films that were completely you know like forgotten about but it turns out that if you collect all the reels of the various films they end up telling you where the Lost Ark of the Covenant is or some shit like that so you have to go on all these adventures by getting the films and then decoding stuff in the films and the metaphor and the symbolism what do you think? Um, I think you'd end up with just chronic popcorn halitosis. <laughs> I think that's so. all that would happen. I, th- I hope TNT's not listening right now, or next week there's going to be the like, announcement Ooh. of the new show. <laughs> if there is, cut us in for points. That's what right. we asked for. Something, something. All right, well, it's time to get on to the part of the show that you all came here in the first place for. What would the, that be? The reviews. And we're going to start it off, uh, since we were talking about Sean Connery being in a film... I was laughing because I totally forgot rewatching this Criterion edition of this great, great Terry Gilliam film, Time Bandits, that Yay! Sean Connery is actually, you know, for supporting actors, one of the bigger supporting actors in it. This was not the beginning of Terry Gilliam's film to, uh, career, but it was the first one that everyone went, that, oh, Terry Gilliam, that Terry Gilliam from Monty Python? Wow, he's a great director. I mean, even though he had been very much involved with the making of the actual Python films and then Jabberwocky, uh, Time Bandits is the one a lot of people think of as the beginning of his true film career, and it certainly reflects a lot. There's a lot of what would come in his later films here. We start to see the genesis of here. He actually calls it the beginning of like his trilogy of imagination, followed by Brazil and ending with the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, I mean, whereas this is totally, I mean, no question, it's a Python-esque, following, with many members of Python in it, uh, adventure, time travel adventure for kids. There's more than enough stuff in here to keep adults or anybody who's a fan of sort of absurdist comedy completely happy and downright, like, in hysterics at points. 
I, I will get my one gripe out of the way. Okay. My one gripe, because I'm going to... Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to have this stewing away all through this. Fair enough. Um, I hate the the way Terry Gilliam does the sound mix on his films. Uh-huh. I hate it with a passion. He's done it all the way through his career, that he seems to keep all the dialogue uh, at the same level for everybody, and it's weirdly muddy. And this is the first place he really does that to this extreme, and he's kept doing it. Uh, and it, it drives me bonkers. That is my only gripe with this film, <laughs> which otherwise is a wonderful yeah, but film. It is, it is a it is a masterpiece. It's, I think it's it's a genuine like you force me to put by uh, you put a gun to my head and say yo let's construct the cannon right now. I put time bandits in before I put Brazil in. Huh. I love Brazil. It got so mutilated that I think it's you know even the original version is kind of like a. I mean, I think totally successful. This is yeah. so bonkers. It's so engaging. It, it it has something that will appeal to everybody because it just goes. We're going to have every level of madness and kookiness, and we're going to pull off things that people nobody else has managed to do successfully. There's other films that will suddenly go. We're going to have people drop through a time hole and run into Robin Hood, and it always feels weird and forced and like it's a little bit too knowing. They get away with it here. Or when they turn up with Sean Connery as as Agamemnon. Um, It's Monty Python's humour rebuilt for a younger audience. Yes. And it it pulls that off perfectly. It does. Uh, The story here is this this little boy is, uh, you know, he has an, uh, clearly has an imagination. His parents clearly don't, are just interested in keeping up with the Joneses. And in their very sort of Brazil-esque house that they live in, plastic on all the furniture, uh, very prominent tube television set, uh, repeatedly playing a game show with a young Jim Broadbent, (laughs) which I was like, wait a minute, is that Jim Broadbent? Um, And one night, his... uh, closet doors open and a bunch of midgets burst through it. Dwarves. Sorry. Dwarves. I'm old. Give me a break. <laughs> and uh, led by the uh, well, they are, sadly... They, they are dwarves. They are actually dwarves because yes. there, is, there is a difference between midgets and dwarves. There is, but you don't, you're not even supposed to say midgets anymore. Are you not? No. It's considered no. to be on PC. Since when? I was just told this like six months ago and then I looked it up and it turns out that it is in fact considered to be... I can't keep not blue- I know, right? That's how I feel. It's like, seriously, you'd rather be called little people than midgets? I'm going to have to go with midgets. Sounds less offensive to me. Yes. But it's not my call to make. So, fair enough. Uh, Please send your letters of complaint too. <laughs> the, the, this group of dwarves led by the wonderful David Rappaport, who was the best known dwarf actor at the time, yep. who sadly committed suicide at like 34. Eight. Yeah, he was really uh, one of his best friends who I forget which one it was uh, on here. One of the other dwarves here, uh, uh, like uh, died from illness or something like that, or uh, I think cancer. And he was also he was just I think it was one of those like I'm actually seeing where I am in the world in this industry. I'm never going to be able to play anything. But you know what I mean? Like a lot a lot of dwarves do, in fact, uh, suffer from depression in the entertainment industry specifically. Yeah. but he's so wonderful in this film as this head dwarf for this whole group. When Kenny Baker is is one of the few times you ever see him play a role where he's not wearing tons of makeup. He's fidget. Or, or, a, su- or a suit of uh, droid armor. A suit of droid armor, yeah. He is R2-D2 in the Star Wars films. And they take the kid with them on this wild ride through time because they have this map that they stole from God, or they just call him the Supreme Being, played by Ralph Richardson. Uh, that has all the time holes and gates you can go to go to go from one time to the other. And why are they? Why did they do this? I mean, they were basically angels for all extents and purposes, but grunts. They work for God building stuff. Why did they do it? Because they wanted to steal gold. Yes. 
it's never really made clear what they would do with said gold on no, the whole, but they're just like, I guess that's what you do. It is a MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin, point. but it's a fun MacGuffin and used to, uh, for a lot of fun. So they go from time to time stealing gold, getting gold stolen from them, getting rich, losing it again through a bunch of different scenarios that have a ton of really funny, great people that appear in them, like John Cleese playing the best version of Robin Hood maybe ever set to film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean Connery as Agamemnon. Uh, Shelley Duvall and Michael Palin repeat, uh, re- uh, played uh, a t- two different roles in here in two different timelines as sort of like a, a couple that isn't really meant to be together. Um, David Warner plays Evil. Evil. In- that is his name. He's just called Evil. One of the most deliciously over-the-top villains of all time who wants the map so he can basically get himself out of the fortress of infinite darkness that he has been trapped in by God uh, and is trying to set up an elaborate trick to get the, the, the dwarves to come there. This is just so much fun all the way through it. It's just wild. It has that Gilliam wild creativeness while never going so far off board as to just be nothing but pure absurdity. He always manages to keep the plot going. If I have any complaint, it's that, and this has always bugged me, even when I was a kid, and I thought maybe I'd see this again, it would bug me less, but it still bugs me. The very, very, very end is so bizarrely dark out of nowhere that I was like, what? (laughs) Oh yeah! And Why then, would you end this film that which, way? Which also means the studio, when they got upset about the end of Brazil, were like, "Did you not see Time Bandits?" Right, right. Yeah, I don't understand what the hell was his reasoning was for that. I yeah. unfortunately did not get a chance to watch the actual uh, like this with the audio commentary, which has director uh, Terry Gilliam, the co-screenwriter and actor Michael Palin, and actors John Cleese, David Warner, and Craig uh, Warnock uh, on it. What a great uh what a great commentary originally recorded in 1997. I mean, God, I'd, I'd pay to watch a Ted talk with just those guys hanging out talking, you know, but there's a, um, a creating the world of time bandits video piece with a production designer and costume designer. There's uh, Terry Gilliam being interviewed with a film scholar, Peter Von Bogg for about an hour or a little over an hour, uh, 80 minutes. There's a, a excerpt from an episode of NBC's Tomorrow Show, which Shelley Duvall talks about Time Bandits, as well as The Shining and some of her Altman film stuff. There's still a gallery. And best of all, the, the insert leaflet, you know, yeah. there's like a pamphlet or something. You unfold it, and it's the time map. Yes. Oh, my God, how cool is that? How perfect is that? The only way that could have been cooler is if it was made of cloth. That would have been perfect. That would have been perfect. I'm actually thinking about just unfolding and getting it framed because I'm like, it's so fucking cool. You should. Uh, This is great, 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 great stuff. Kind of overdue for a Blu-ray release as well. How does does the uh, Blu-ray transfer look? It looks terrific to me. I really didn't have any complaints at all. I, I, you know, I'm just just so excited to have this goddamn thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's about damn time. This is one of those films that you're like, who greenlit this? Who went, hey, Terry Gilliam, the guy that does the quasi-obscene um, illustrations for Monty Python, let's give him the money to actually make this stuff into three-dimensional you know, models and puppets and right. you know, and giants wandering around with ships on their heads. It's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> so creative, so innovative. And there's a lot of competition for this this week, but this is my pick of the week. Yeah. I mean, it's just too classic. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. I just felt childlike joy rediscovering this movie well, i'll come back to you on, on whether this you know i still think on it because there's a couple of contenders this week it's a strong it's a it's a good strong week it is it is well speaking of good, uh, none of you know no no efforts of either do jimmy stewart impressions this week which is fabulous well, uh, 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 
Does that offend you that I do a terrible impression of Jimmy Stewart? Uh, not offend per se, but close enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to continue on with goofy science fiction and talk about Doctor Who season eight yes. or series eight, which is I've never understood why they call it that because it's like clearly it's not the eighth season no, of Doctor Who, not. but I'm just it's it, it it's almost like don't worry about all those other seasons, even though it is in continuity with all those other seasons. Yeah. I just I find it very irritating that they don't. I I find it kind of insulting to the work that was done before. Um, and, yeah, it it really bugs me. I just, I yeah. just like you don't need to. Just don't pretend you are. Agreed. Yeah, and I think that I can't help but feel watching this season. Whereas I don't think it's worth maligning to the level some very hyperbolic wags have 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 been. Well, they've been so hard on it, quite frankly. Yeah, but I think that Stephen Moffat's run of creativity seems to be running a bit dry ultimately and mainly that's due to he's just not trying anymore to tie everything together in his episodes like he always was more of the guy going for it's a kid show type of attitude about it and much more absurd and bizarre but now it's like even with the single within a single episode he doesn't even it's like he doesn't give a shit that things don't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> you're like, wait, but you just said that, and now you're doing this. That did, yeah, all right, fine, whatever. Or that he comes with solutions that don't that they didn't earn at all. Yeah. That being said, it's still Doctor Who. You can still enjoy it as Doctor Who. And I gotta say, overall, I think Peter Capaldi is doing a great job as the Doctor. I I, I love the fact that they cast Capaldi because yeah. It's such a change. It changes the dynamic of the relationship with uh, the assistant, which has been uh, one of my complaints about the, about the, when they brought it back initially was very simple. The doctor doesn't fuck the help. <laughs> the, be all, end all. Humans are. There was a line in the original, uh, in the earlier seasons. When he goes to Gallifrey and he takes one of his assistant, the human assistants with him, and uh, they go, "Oh, you bought your pet," because <laughs> yeah. time lords can tell that humans are, you know, beneath them. Right. But humans aren't even advanced enough to see the differences. You know, they <laughs> are. They are. They are different creatures, and they, they are, the kind of romance plot subplots didn't work as well for me. I did like, uh, you know, when they played games like with Amy Pond, that she was obsessed with the Doctor because the Doctor had saved her and she'd grown up with this image. Right. And, you know, he's going, no, it's not going to happen. And she she's not getting that quite but through her head. That being said, that's the second time they played with that concept. Yeah. Uh, I forget her name, the, the policewoman uh, uh, who was on... Um, Torchwood as well. Yeah. Who had that, they, they, they had that exact same relationship. And I don't have a problem with the doctor. I mean, come on. Eventually, the doctor is going to fall in love with somebody. I mean, he's hanging out with all these hot chicks. I mean, I think we have all all know what it's like to be, in, like you and me, to be an older guy and look at a 22-year-old and go, damn. I thought you were about <laughs> to say that our relationship was about to go to the next level. Though. No, 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 it, no. I know it gets sweaty in here. No, but, no, no. I, I'm uh, a, I can be an Anglophile, but not to that degree. <laughs> no, I mean, I like the fact that you have an older doctor who is... To a certain degree, questioning what he is doing and what he has done. And that you actually, for the first time in a very long while, you have a slightly combative relationship with Clara. That Clara is, you know, she wants her old doctor back. She doesn't quite understand this guy. And she doesn't understand what he'll put her through. And, And she wants to challenge him. 
But there's times where it's like she's not entitled to do that. She's not in a situation where the world can wait for her to get over you know, what it, what needs to be done. Yeah. And there's there's some interesting moments where they play with the idea that, that she almost wants to be the Doctor. And it's like, you can't because you can't ever count, ha- handle that burden. No, that's... Yeah, the, and, yeah, I, and I this is the underlying thing. It's like that's the, the, the most challenge int- of being the Doctor. That's the most interesting thing going on with the season to me is that, yes, she when they their relationship does become combative because he's so damn acerbic and that which is certainly not the first doctor to be that way but it was more attributed with like the earlier doctors uh and she's like no i do want that old doctor back and if you can't be him then i'm gonna be him i'm gonna be that doctor the way i envision the doctor being and her coming to terms with her own lack of capacity emotionally to do what the doctor does you know basically screaming at him the things that the doctor does has to do you know, and it's just she might as well be screaming at herself. Yeah. I find that stuff really fascinating. It's just the actual plotting of these things that is a little plotting. Yeah. I mean, they, they, <laughs> there's been a couple of episodes this season where they have raided classic tropes oh, yeah. uh, into the Dalek, which is Fantastic Voyage, done with, done inside a Dalek. Done poorly, I thought. Uh, I thought it was fairly entertaining. It could have been a lot better. I mean, this is the thing. I, I agree with you. This is not the best season but it's countered by the fact that Capaldi is such a great doctor. And I, you know, if I had a frustration with the season, it's that I want Capaldi to have the scripts that are suitable for him. Agreed. That are worth it. Uh, I did like the fact that uh, Ben Wheatley directed the first two episodes, who kind of, you know, honestly, um, weaves gold out of some pretty gnarly thread. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, you know he's, he's a great director i think he's one of the most interesting directors working in the uk at the moment and i think he manages to raise those above where they where they could have been yeah um you know all in all there's some really you know there's some fun stuff in this season they kind of play he's a very kind of john pertwee-esque doctor he is very much um, so. and i think that's that's to the benefit of the show i think he's really I, season nine i think he's going to find who I, he really is i think the, the show needs a doctor like him but yeah. it also needs some fresh blood in the writing department. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, there are some really fun episodes here in here, though. I found myself at odds with another major critic, though, about which ones I liked and which ones I hated, because he, the, all the ones I really liked, he didn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I really enjoyed Robin Hood. Yes. I thought that was a lot of fun, where was a, was the Doctor keeps insisting twist. there's no such thing as Robin Hood, and the TARDIS brings them, and there's Robin Hood. It's Robin Hood and the, the Merry Men, and the whole deal is generic and speci- like to the books as you come. The Doctor the whole time is like, this is bullshit! What is wrong with you people? And Claire is just like, you're my favorite Robin Hood, and it's so much fun. Do I get to wear the dress? I yeah. get to wear the dress. <laughs> and as well... as a Mark uh, Gattis episode. Yes. Yes, that's, I, that's that's an important an important part of it. As well, uh, time heist, which is a neat little, you know, let's do a Doctor Who uh, bank heist episode. And I thought, even though ultimately the how it all ends up paying out is a little like most things this season. Like seriously, yeah, <laughs> um, it's fun to watch it uh, play out. Um, listen, which was one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, listen was great with, with this when, idea that the the Doctor is trying to find something that has been. Uh, that is just outside of perception and yeah. has been just outside of perception for his well, entire yeah, life. Yeah, the idea that being that, like, like, there are, like, 
what is it? He starts with the little, like, as he's thinking out loud to himself. So there are things that become the best at hunting and they become the absolute alpha of that. And there are things that are the best at this. So by logic, since there are creatures who evolve skills for hiding, there has to be some sort of an organism that's absolutely the alpha at hiding. And we've never seen it because yeah. it's just that good. At uh, and that being the uh, conceit, it's funny that once again, uh, Moffat is playing with a creature that has to do with your perceptions being altered. Yes. It seems to be a running trope with him, but at least this time he chose not to say, okay, and now welcome to the new monster of Doctor yeah. Who, because I would have been like, come on, Moffat, you're, you're really you're, you're really milking this idea for everything it's worth. I The, the other interesting thing this season is that they introduced a romantic um, foil for Clara and Danny Pink. Yes. Um, who's actually, kind of, actually an interesting character. Uh, at first... I think he actually gets more interesting as the season goes on because initially he's he's almost a little bit cartoony. Um, you have a final, you have a resolution with him which is not no, what you would expect. No, the resolution with him, I thought, was the best part of his entire run, yeah. even though the whole two-parter ending that involves the Cyberman and involves the Master, yay, the Master, was didn't make almost any sense at all. No. There's like almost nothing in that episode followed. Like is it they barely explain one how one thing gets to the next. And it's very frustrating. But you've got this actress playing a doing a wonderful job playing the master. Finally a female master, which seems to me the first nod as Moffat has said recently, okay, fine, we'll make a female doctor soon. <laughs> you know, saying yes, okay, we'll do it. Uh I mean she's great. I really enjoy her and I hope to see more of her. Uh and that story between Claire and her boyfriend comes to a nice ending. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's going to be interesting to see where they, you know, how they write Clara out because I think I think she has reached the end of her duration yeah. as a as a companion. Agreed. And it's like, and they did announce put, she was leaving. Yeah, who do you put in place as a new foil? For this doctor, I think that's going to be an interesting challenge. I think it's time to put some dudes in there. Yeah, and dudes who aren't just the significant other of a woman. Like I said. There. Stop with the romance plot lines. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also saying, if, if we are going to move forward with a, a female doctor, I want Sheridan Smith. I don't know who that is. Sheridan Smith is a British comedian. She started off in this great, weird, northern uh, comedy called Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. And she's <laughs> I like really her already. funny in that. <laughs> um, but she's also a phenomenal stage actress. She did one of the best-reviewed uh, productions of uh, Hedda Gabler uh, in the West End in years. She just did a TV movie... Uh, two part TV movie about Scylla Black huh. uh, okay. and her and her career. Um, uh, she, if you saw Tower Block, I did. Uh, Didn't like she, it, but I. She's the. Oh wait, no, the, no, no. I did like. You're not talking about the Ben Stiller one. No. Okay, the other one. Yeah, the British, I liked the that British one. kind of sniper I li- taking I, yeah, out. I like. I like that. Yeah. Block. Yeah. Uh, she's the uh, the female lead in that. Okay. And she has incredible range. Um, and a kind of like charming wit to her, and she really knows how to be like slightly above the material, but in a way that's still engaging, which I think is what a good doctor does. Hmm. And I'm gonna go, yeah, I'm gonna say, yeah, I'd love to see Ben Wheatley um, and Mark Gattis coming together to write something and direct something for her, because I think that would be phenomenal. I still think they should take Helen Mirren up on her promise. No, She'd do it. God, no, no, no. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. St- I'm going to put a pin in this. Why not? What's wrong because, with that? Because the whole point of The Doctor is that you don't get one of the top name performers in the country at that point. I don't know and if that's the whole point no, of no, The No, no, no. It's always been. You bring in somebody who is really talented, has not yet... It isn't bigger than the part. 
I mean, the biggest name that they previously had was John Pertwee, who'd done a lot of radio comedy stuff. True. It was a big comedy name. He was pretty well known. And what's his name from the beginning of this new series thing? Christopher Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston. Um, but, I, you know, Marin is, is, is too big. Okay, so Tom Cruise then. <laughs> big in a different way. Can you imagine if they did that just for the fuck of it for like three episodes to fuck with everybody and then have him just regenerate again? <laughs> Captain ride. Space Time. I would be um, all for that. Captain Space no, Time. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, Dark- Danny Danny Pudi as, <laughs> as Doctor Who for like Darkest four timeline. episodes. That would be that would actually be hilarious. <laughs> Darkest timeline. Joel McHale as the Doctor. That would actually not be a terrible would choice if really he can pull fun. off a British accent. Yeah. Because I, I think that like whereas it's fine to have the Doctor change gender or color of skin, to actually completely change his accent might be the accent pushing credibility. To stay. The it's got to stay. stay. We, yeah. everyone who likes Doctor Who to some degree is an Anglophile, and that's got to stay. Yeah. Uh, it's too bad Billy Connolly's so sick. Yeah. I would have loved to have the seen big, him the big play the would be great as well. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, this has, comes with, of course, four uh, lots of extras. There's four commentaries. There's a 140-minute behind the scenes, which is basically a little featurette available for every single episode. Um, there's Earth Qu- Conquest, the World Tour, which is them, uh, Stephen Moffat, Peter Capaldi, Jenna Coleman, and other guests uh, going around to different cities and touring with what I believe was the first episode when they were showing that. Uh, the Ultimate Time Lord for 45 minutes and the Ultimate Companion for 48 minutes, which was a special hosted by the fifth doctor peter davidson just taking a look back through the history of like the the doctor by asking everyone what do you think the best qualities were of the doctors or the best qualities of the companions what have you there's every year there's at least two or three specials like this on the bbc because it's like one of the most popular tv shows over there like ever (laughs) best companion uh wow that's a tough one i'd have to go with uh second romana yep uh amy pond or sarah jane smith Ooh, yeah, that's such an easy answer. Look at you. But Everybody says so... Amy Bond or but, Sarah But no, Jane she Smith. was really... But they were... That's the thing. They were both so incredibly good. They were really good. Yeah. And that, they, if I had they to... Flood, balanced the, they balanced the doctors. If I had to go back... Like, if I had to say, like, top five, they would both be in my top five. I'm sorry, but Rose would be in my top five. Ugh, I love wrong. Rose and our whole storyline so much. Wrong. Sorry. I know you're, you don't like the doctor dating, but I actually found that whole story was just heartbreaking and wonderful. Move on. All right, sorry. <laughs> also, a deep breath, live pre-show and after who live hour-long talk with chris hardwick who now pretty much anything he likes he talks his way into being the special host for a special about bring back web suit just to keep him busy i I like chris hardwick a lot i genuinely do but sometimes he's so agreeable i just want to smack him (laughs) i was like can't you disagree with anyone to ever just be acerbic just once just yeah remember when you used to do you used to make unpleasant jokes about people getting hit in the nuts on web soup i just think honestly he's one of those people who's just not as funny without his two co-hosts there with him he's just kind of a more he's like a ryan seacrest without them but when they're there all three function at top form hardwick out <laughs> Review over. Uh, Post premiere Q and A. A Doctor Who. A small series of interviews. Uh, a oh, I forgot to mention Mummy on the Orient Express. Another really good, oh, solid that is, episode. That's actually, I, that may actually be my favorite episode. Uh, of the I season. think that's probably my favorite of the season as well. Which it has a video for the band Foxes have a song that sort of like one of the singers in the in there at one point singing briefly, and so they made a whole video to go with it. Anyway. If you liked the eighth season, this is a solid set that, once again, they put together for it because the BBC always does a good job for the Who fans of hooking you up. Whovians. 
Hoovens. Hoovens? Hoovians. 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 There's Hoovians off my lawn. Uh, well, so we're talking about TV series, let's keep going with that with one I did not get to see, but I know that you did. R-W-B-Y. Ruby. Season 2. Is it pronounced Ruby? It is indeed pronounced Ruby. Now, this is, I know it's not technically anime because it's actually made in America, right? Yep. But it... It's basically anime. It is um, made by our friends over at uh, local animation and machina studio, uh, Rooster Teeth. And and apparently this has been a huge hit for them, so good for them. This has been their first real legitimate breakout success. Um, They basically uh, decided, you know, we've kind of done stuff that appeals to, you know, male gamer audiences for a very long time. We need to expand our base. And they basically did something that is really, in many ways, a completely by the numbers, uh, you know, teenage girls in a magical high school going out and killing monsters okay. anime. So I mean, it really is. This is what I got from trailers of it. So I went, that just doesn't interest me. Uh, but why should it interest me? It Richard? should interest you because it's surprisingly well written. It's very sparky. Um, it the animation may put a lot of people off because it's it's kind of you know it started off as a web series so you know a lot of people go oh that's nice when they're going to finish the rendering on it <laughs> but it has its own style it has its own approach uh, season two is is I think pretty much impossible to understand unless you've seen season one I okay. will freely admit that well, it's one of those continuing story things, yeah which and is... the basic idea is that there is this you know like I said mystical high school where kids go to learn to fight giant monsters and pretty much the first thing you do when you turn up is you get issued with this ridiculous composite weapon so one of them has a combination scythe slash sniper rifle so, so presumably this all takes place in Switzerland then yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know and it's you know a lot of this I was not expected to like this when I saw season one I was like no this isn't going to be for me but the writing's really sharp. It's really funny. The characters are extremely well developed. The basic idea of these four girls, who are thinly veiled versions of uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, um, and the Snow Queen, and, oh, really? and Goldilocks, oh. and Little Red Riding Hood, who is Ruby herself. I didn't realize it had a fairy tale aspect. Oh, it, it has. You know, and this this thing. There's so many references in it. It is super loaded. I mean, the fact that the, the lead character has a scythe, which is this weird thing that happens all the time in anime. They're like, let's give a 12-year-old a scythe, which is five times bigger than it. So there's all these references which Works are Works for loaded. the Grim Reaper. You know? Yeah, loaded in and larded in there. That, you know, it, it's just a smorgasbord of little little hits that make you go, oh, I get that. Oh, I reference that. Oh, there. That, ah. that thing. So that kind of gets you in because you know it's like, oh, yeah. But the writing is surprisingly sharp. It's it's surprisingly witty. This isn't for everybody. But the fact that it has developed this real fan base, um, you know, and proves that you can do um, a pure anime. And it isn't it is all the tropes of this kind of anime. Do it for an American audience, do it with American sensibilities, do it in a more American sense of humour. Uh not make it feel like something has been really badly translated or unpleasantly dubbed. Right. Um, the designs are great. The characters are really engaging. I mean, yeah, they're all pretty two-dimensional. But there's something about it that's just really sparky and witty and fun that I've enjoyed hugely. And I did not expect it. I, this, this is not normally my kind of thing. But, yeah, i, I got to say, you know, this is one of these things that I think it is worth going and checking out some of the episodes online. And if you like them, this, you know, it's well worth 
uh, picking this up and going back and picking up season one as well. Uh, yeah, I'd heard primarily just rave reviews of this. Of course, you know, as opposed to just watching it on, I, I don't know where it's available now, maybe Netflix or Hulu or something uh, like through, that? Uh, actually, through the, the first season. Side. Okay, uh, but this comes with uh, the DVD, or D- DVD and Blu-ray come with lots of extras, production diaries, um, uh, storyboards, uh, the RTX panel with the cast and crew, having a lot of fun and being goofy talking about it four different commentaries director cast crew and animator uh yeah it seems like a pretty solid little set and the nice thing that he did was that they uh they have it on here in both the individual episodes but also they have the entire thing edited together as one two and a half hour movie oh nice which makes a lot more sense they, God, i wish they, more shows would do yeah that, that you know because I mean, it is it's it, i don't know, need to can't keep it's distracting to keep flipping through the uh, credits and to keep having to go like, I don't need to see the opening sequence again. Yeah. And it actually works really well. They structured this pretty beautifully as individual episodes because they knew they were going to be doing it in this format. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The the Rooster Teeth panel is is very entertaining. But this is something that, you know, they didn't know they had a pre-built audience for and there's been a huge response. And I, I, you know, I think this and Legend of Korra have proved that you can take a lot of the concepts of anime, of anime and a lot of the tropes yeah. and translate them successfully and take the things that work in anime yeah. and internationally and bring them across. Fair enough. All right, uh, continuing on with television, this is something I saw that you didn't get to see, is Under the Dome Season 2. Good luck. Ad- adapted from the Stephen King novel, uh, which I have not read. Did you read the Stephen King novel? Uh, I gave up on King a few years ago. Somewhere Scott we- our friend Scott Weinberg's head just exploded, because he's king-obsessive, and I'm like, ah, this is not really uh, my in my cup of tea. I, You know, I... I genuinely enjoyed my run of reading Stephen King and it was really like just anything else it was like I've read so much of this guy that I've become over familiar with his style and it's not that his stuff got bad I just got bored of his style yeah. and moved on uh, although I will say I really enjoyed his follow up to The Shining that I, I was the first King I had read in years and years and years The Shining <laughs> Shh, you want to get sued? <laughs> Uh, That's an old reference, kids. Go look it up. Some, I'm sure it's The Simpsons. Our fans watch The Simpsons. <laughs> um, but Under the Dome, one I didn't watch. Certainly, it's weird. We just reviewed uh, The Bubble. I don't, I, Not with you, but I reviewed it with Brian, which is an old 60s obscure science fiction film, which has a plot with a town that has an invisible bubble over it and everyone's trapped. Uh, except they all act like they're citizens of the prisoner and i was like i really enjoyed this and i'm a big fan of the graphic novel series girls which is about a whole town that gets trapped under a bubble clearly i just like you know bubble trap stuff well, i just saw a hungarian movie uh which is you know four kids trapped inside a bubble uh <laughs> talking to aliens which is pretty much the same idea so. well there you go if it's in a bubble i'll watch it you'll watch it uh and that being said this uh cbs show is like it's it's lost doing the like bare amount of effort (laughs) you know it's it's lost for a less intelligent audience and i don't mean to say that you like the show you're stupid or anything like that it's just more pandering it's more old school in the way that of its storytelling in many ways it is a 80s stephen king miniseries expanded out to a continuing series in its own way which has some advantages and some disadvantages. I mean, first off, you got Brian K. Vaughn, who is a terrific writer mm-hmm. and has worked on lots of television before, who's largely pretty much show running this thing and developed it. 
uh, you have an interesting cast of people. They didn't fall back on a huge amount of like, oh, we've got to get these people because they're more recognizable. Really, like on the whole, it's Dean Norris is the main guy that you know from anything else. He, of course, uh, on from Breaking Bad was uh-huh. so wonderful. Here, he's more or less the villain. Um, uh, big Jim Rennie, who's a used car dealer in this town and small-time politician who has... His ego is constantly in the way. He constantly thinks he's right and ends up, you know, doing terrible, heinous shit hey! because of this. Oh, this is what we need to do to save the town. On the other side of him, you have uh, Mike Vogel as Barbie. Yes, that is what they all call <laughs> him. His name is Dale Barbara. Everybody calls him Barbie, who was an army veteran who was visiting the small town or driving through it pretty much when the the dome came down. So he was an outsider. But he and Rachel Lefevre, who's in two TV shows we're talking about this week, um, uh, who is an investigative reporter in the town and becomes his girlfriend. They're kind of like the side representing good. Everybody else in the town is somewhere in the middle. You know, Stephen King likes his polar opposites and then to show how polar opposite they are by showing how gray everybody else is. This is one of those shows. And it's not, like I said, it's not terrible. It isn't. It's just, it feels like there's no grand plan Mm. is what it feels like a lot of the time. And it moves so quickly with plot that, characterization is only there to serve as to be in service of said plot in any given episode every week being a given oh what crazy shit is the dome doing now that might kill us all the dome changes the weather so it gets freezing cold and the dome starts to shrink so they might all get crushed and the dome you know the dome's always doing some shit (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile there's a group of teenagers it's not like like making a really good sitcom rather than science fiction right oh the crazy dome next door under the dome <laughs> with Scott Bio as the dome. Oh, Jesus hey, Christ. dome! I need my lawnmower back. I, I, I'm just going to say it now. I think Scott Bio. We've waited long enough. It's time for him to be given a major role in something again. As a dome. As a dome, he is Scott Bio. As, as obl- the dome. As an oblong. As an oblong. All right. Um, there's four kids who are in the middle of this thing that are like supposed in some way related to this magical egg thing. It's very, yeah, that gives out that gives out sparks and does makes people hallucinate. And is this is a weird season? Like last season just started to get weird. This season, like everything that's happening is really weird. And like there's a there's a cavern underneath the school that leads to an exit to go back to the real world. But then of course they totally Dean Norris does something to totally fuck it up for everybody. Like he always does. Every time the good guys like, we think we found a solution to something. Dean Norris comes in and is like, I'm going to fuck it up for everybody. And they don't just kill the guy. It's, it's infuriating. I mean, they, they don't even have to just kill him, put him in a jail cell. The, pretty much the whole town by like the early on in the season has turned on this guy and they don't just, Put him in a jail cell so he can stop fucking it up for everyone. The killing also sounds like a reasonable step by this point. Well, they make it clear early on that the dome, or at least they, they say it and then immediately, you know, do stuff to contradict it. But that the dome don't like them killing themselves, yeah. each other. They, the dome doesn't like it and we'll, we'll be angry about it when it happens. The dome has a personality through its actions on some level. Does I, this feel like it's actually going somewhere, or does it just, just feel it, like a bunch of crazy shit it, happening it, once a week? It feels very 80s in the sense that it's 
it's season to season. We've got to get to the ending point of the season and then we'll find a way to just go, oh, that wasn't as important as you thought it was. So now let's start back doing the episode to episode thing again until we come to another point like that at the end Defoe of the season. If Bo and Luke season. Duke ever manage to leap over the entire dome, because it hasn't, from your description, so I cool. feel like this is where it's going eventually. Or, or Dean Norris is like, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I keep saying it's not terrible. It's not. It's just okay and i mean it moves quick i'll give you that there's shit happening almost every episode there's no waiting around for stuff to happen if you if you find stuff boring like character development and the conversation dull you don't have to deal with but so much of that (laughs) um i don't know it's hard to say this early on two seasons in if it's really going anywhere or not right now to me it doesn't it feels a little sort of like we're making it up as we go along but I mean, it's all right for it, what it is. I thought season two was a lot more fun than season one, if for no other reason that, yes, it's getting more crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's enough of a reason. It's more bizarre, more science fiction-y, uh, darker. A lot of characters die, which is in, and die kind of nasty during yep. the season. It's one show, I'll tell you, you really don't know who's safe. Yeah. Like, there are characters you go, oh, well, obviously they're main. Oh, nope, they're dead. There you go. <laughs> of course, they come back as ghosts. Ah, yeah. So you know, still no, still drawing a paycheck. Yeah, nobody really ever dies on this show in terms of at least yes. And they even early on in the season they bring back a character that was never on the show that apparently disappeared and died in 1988 in the town, and now she's back. And she's like, the dome can bring people back to life. Well, thanks for taking all of the dramatic tension out of anyone ever dying on the show ever <laughs> again. <laughs> but you know, it's oh, okay. Dome. <laughs> oh, you dome. All right. Well, you didn't get to see that one, so I don't want to stand uh, too long on that. But one we did both get to see was the long-awaited, holy shit, why did this take so long, second yes! season on DVD A Better Off Ted. Now, keep in mind, not all, all the scientists are running around looking for the monkey, but he can't be found. <laughs> I love this show. All the episodes of this were not even ever aired on I television. Know. This is like... Outrage. The, yeah, it's ridiculous. And this was a phenomenal uh, situation comedy by Victor Fresco, who was also in charge of another great show that got canceled too early. Andy Richter controls the universe. Uh-huh. A wonderful little show. This is one of those shows that even as it was airing, every, uh, like a lot of people I know were watching it and really into it. Everybody was talking about it. Got canceled anyway. Yep. Uh, it was, the critics loved the hell out of this, but I guess that they just weren't, I mean, it still had low ratings. Just people that like you and me hang out with like this show. <laughs> I, I think we knew the entire uh, entire viewership personally. Well, I think this is one of those uh, things like Arrested Development that, like, I think eventually, I think it, maybe we're reaching the time that this is going to to finally find its audience, or people are going to go, "Oh, wow, this show! You're, you guys are right. This show is fucking hysterical. How did I not know about this?" But I, I don't know. The, it, ba- it, the basic idea is, and, and this is why I think you know it, it's it was so accessible to so many people. It was about basically corporate dronehood. Yes, it was was, uh, Dilbert but clever. Yes, (laughs) Dilbert but not offensive, and with well-written female parts. Yeah, Uh, great female parts. Holy shit! (laughs) What what a great female cast that this has. Portia Del Rossi in I'm sorry, her best role. Yes, Uh, you know she of course was in Arrested Development as well. Here she plays Veronica Palmer, which is the immediate boss at this company, Viridian Dynamics. Who is very, I mean, she's like, I mean, got to be an Ayn Rand fan, basically. Well, she's also, she is 
clearly actually sociopathic yeah. because she's become a, a senior manager and has no understanding of how people work no. at all, and ever. The thing is, she ends up being a sympathetic character because she is kind of a fish out of water herself. Yeah. She's put in these scenarios. She doesn't know how to deal with them, so she is forced to regularly refer to uh, Ted... Uh, Ted Chris, played by Jay Harrington, who's the narrator, and you know he comes in and every once in a while breaks the fourth wall and talks to him, who's the vice president of research and development there, because he is almost too much heart sometimes. Yeah. Like, he's the guy who's like, he's very well-dressed and everybody likes him, but he actually does like people. And he's a single father. And yeah. Like, you know, he's, it's a testament to Jay Harrington in this part that this could have been either a ridiculous cloying character or a pastiche. You know, he makes him rounded and likable, which is, you've got this guy who's like, he's successful in business. He's a nice guy. Yeah. You actually want to see him succeed. You want to see, you're rooting for this guy who in pretty much every other comedy that was being written at the time would have been the bad guy. True. And, and this really turns that on its head. And he's not generic in his good, like being a good guy either. He, they have him regularly f- make mistakes and have to go through like, Oh shit, I totally put my foot in my mouth and treated that person like shit. And now I got to find a way to get out of it inside of the complicated world of office politics, which has episodes dealing with like sexual harassment stuff with the endless morass that can be sexual harassment accusations. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like, like, what, wait, what am I supposed to say? What's the right thing to say now? <laughs> like, you know, him being in a situation, at least in this, which I realize is more uncommon than them actual being true accusations, but where he literally did not harass the person yeah. in question and then is infuriated <laughs> that he's being put through the scenario where he's guilty, you know? It, it, in some ways, this is almost like a spoof of what people were trying to take more seriously in things like Mad Men. Yeah. At the time. This is kind of almost a commentary, a contemporary commentary on that. True. Uh, you've also got Andrea Anders um, as uh, uh, Linda's Wardling, yeah. who's one of the, like, a real office drone, who, yeah, there's a romance plot, which is long going, of those two never quite... Well, it's a triangle, too, yeah. because he's got that going as well with his own boss. Yeah. Four shows, like, they've fucked around before, but it's not appropriate, and they both know it, but still, they keep kind of getting drawn back to each other every once in a while, because Portia is, they're both very sexy people. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Anders has the, they're both, the, whereas those two are, like, unbelievably sexy, I, I, uh, Andrea Anders' character is more like a re- girl in the real world sexy. Yes. You know, like, she's very attractive, but she seems like the girl next door. But this is, you know, this builds up, and, and did this so quickly in the first season, um, it it was part of that movement of comedies that wouldn't let on from moment one that it was building an arc up across the entire season. Yeah. But then you go back and watch it and go, oh no, all these episodes are actually the same story. They're all fitting together very, very well. A lot of it due to the the you know the great sidekicks. This is a great cast. Oh yeah. Uh, particularly um, Phil and Lem. Uh, uh, Jonathan Slavin and Malcolm Barrett who were the two researchers who keep coming up with increasingly dangerous and stupid things yeah. across the season and there, and there is kind of a there's, it's the opposite of the monster of the week it's the bad idea invention of the week some of them I'm like I would try that though you'd there give was, it a shot there's it's one like, of them where like self growing steak <laughs> that sounds good <laughs> uh, there's one of them where one of the guys his mom is having sex with his uh like major competitor in the department another egotistic scientist and he's more of a nerd himself uh 
and as they come back around, there's sort of a bonding moment towards the end where, like, with him and his mom, where she's like, you're right, I should have given you respect for whatever you do and see if you're good at it. And he's like, you know, try this. It's popcorn that pops in your mouth. I was like, ooh, I would totally you try would that. Eat that. I would totally eat that. It's Pop Rocks, but with corn. The, oh, my God. This was so smartly written. Uh, the performances across the board just knock it out of the park. I mean, this kind of stands for me with a kind of major network, subversive, you know, surprisingly subversive comedies. Um up with that with Scrubs, and I think it's a real shame it got cancelled after two seasons. Yeah, you know it's a real tragedy, and you know now finally you can see all of this. Um, and yeah, it's on Netflix and it's on Hulu and a whole bunch of stuff. But uh, the the Netflix and Hulu versions, for some unknown reason, I think there were some rights issues and they lost the uh, they actually lost the uh, the intro music. Huh? How weird. Which makes no sense, and it kind of throws you when you're watching it, because the intro music is so good and so yeah. pivotal to the show. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, one of the other great things about this show is that they, uh, the, the company Viridian Dynamics, every so often you will have a spoof Viridian Dynamics commercial yeah, yeah. midway through the show, which play perfectly for these kind of corporations that they want to advertise themselves, but they don't really do anything. And it's play not- do a sort of Brazilian like future type of look yeah, to it you know like the really there's one that's like don't cross us yeah. seriously no seriously <laughs> ever yeah Viridian <laughs> <I>, dynamics <laughs> this was this was a, a a wonderful commentary on corporate america and people trying to keep some sense of themselves in the environment i think it wasn't quite scathing enough some people who wanted to be a much more a much darker satire but i think it was like it, it has was, a real heart that's never cloying about no. it yeah, this is this is genuinely charming, yes. but funny, witty, and incisive little show, and yes. it's really it, it really should have been much more successful than it is. And you know what? It's only been four years since this damn thing's been cancelled. Yo, know, there is room to bring it back. Agreed. I really think there is. I would love if this thing suddenly went got a resurge of interest. It's so good, and it's still so applicable. To do. Nothing in here has changed. No. You know, I'm, in fact, I'm telling you, if you if you like Scrubs, if you like Community, yeah, if you like that kind of like really spot on sharp writing, yeah, with kind of performances that realize they're they're you know playing kind of a meta role of it. Um, this is absolutely 100% for you. In fact, you know, th- this is this may be my pick of the week because I, I just love this show so much. It is good. I wish this came with extra features. Neither, yeah. neither one of the seasons, I believe, come with any no, bonus features. Which, which but is a, a real shame. At least they're both now available. Yeah. So thanks to Olive Films that put this out. And, and you know, I, I honestly can say that you can watch this and next time somebody goes, oh, Arrested Development was a, an underrated gem. It's like, oh, really? No. Here's an underrated gem for you, bitches. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. We all love Arrested Development, Development. but it's a little late to call it, uh, you know, <laughs> underappreciated. Yeah, that boat, that boat sailed about six years ago. Yeah, I think we all, really everyone was, who is going to appreciate that has appreciated it. Nobody went to bat for this show at the time, but it really is just a, 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 a real gem. It's funny how, like, a lot of the times... I will discover stuff like this along the way of doing the show where like they'll offer me a TV show from like 1987 that I've never fucking heard of. And you're like, okay, fine. I'll get a couple episodes. And you're like, this is brilliant. What the fuck happened? And nine times out of 10, it's the same type of shit that happened to Firefly. Whoever brought it to the network, got a job at another network and left. And whoever was there didn't feel like they were going to earn any points by that show going, doing good. So they just kind of buried it. They're like, whatever. Put it on Friday nights. Who gives a shit? Yeah. 
the death slot. So basically what you're saying is you want a complete uh, box set of Herman's Head. I actually did like Herman's Head. It was great. Movie. That's what I'm saying. You, you want see a the box preview set of Herman's Head. You see the preview of the new Pixar movie? Yeah. It's yeah, I was Herman's like, Head. it's fucking Herman's Head. It, 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 <laughs> I was absolutely outraged when I saw that. I was like, really? Can we just have a Herman's Head show instead? Well, a lot of the critics are, I mean, everyone's so, you know, a lot of people are young and write for the web and fair enough. But they're like, well, this is the most unique idea I've seen in a while. I was like, no, like, ah! <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, uh, our next up, we're going back to movies and a film that was probably would have been my second choice for pick of the week is Jingle Bell Rocks, which is a documentary about people who collect exclusively Christmas music. Now, at this point, many of you were probably going, I'll just fast forward to the next. Don't, no, don't. No, this documentary is wonderful. Yes. Um, what a neat idea. This guy who's kind of broken, who's the main character, um, and he has late in life grabbed onto this, I'm going to start collecting Christmas music because I love it. It puts me in touch with my youth, which was a better time. I find a connection with it. So he's going to music stores and just buying everything he doesn't have that's yeah. a Christmas album. No matter how obscure or clearly lame, he's getting it in the hopes that he's going to find stuff, you know, little gems of gold on it. And in his travels, he finds people who've been doing this for a while and are yeah. really good at it and have discovered that, oh my God, there's some insane, there's an insane amount of just really great, almost completely undiscovered Christmas songs out there from the past. Yeah. And, you know, the guy who, like, makes a compilation every year for all, like, a huge list of friends just mails them a package compilation that he's assorted from the the little pieces of gold that he's found on all these various 45s and things. I was like, I, how do I get on that guy's list? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, yeah, right? we would love to. No, he's too busy listening to Christmas albums. Yeah, and, and the thing is that you're automatically thinking, oh, you know, there's Vince Guaraldi and then there's just a lot of, you know, bad music. Some of this shit is amazing. God, they find some blues and jazz and R&B that's like, wow, that's a good song. <laughs> like, And there's a lot of it in here. And of course... This... And, and some really obscene stuff as well. Yeah. yeah Backdoor yeah. Santa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a good, really good song. Yeah. And you might... You'll listen to it and you'll go, wait, I recognize that the basic part of this music. Where do I know that from? Well, you know it because... Run DMC sampled it for their famous uh, Christmas and Hollis song. Yep. So it's like, oh, oh. And, they talk, and they and they talk to so many great people. In this yeah. Film, think, who you find out very quickly are Christmas secret Christmas record obsessives. Uh, Reverend Run. Reverend Run. Yeah. I was like, oh my uh, god, it's so good to see him. Boy, he needs to go out and run a bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wayne Coyle. Yeah, from uh, the Flaming Lips. Uh, John Waters. Uh, John Waters, who's famous for being a Christmas obsessive. Yeah, but the, uh, you, know, but and it's you just have like, to have him on something like you know, this. And there's just this real sense of, you know what? You shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that everybody has a Christmas album somewhere. I mean, every Christmas in our house, we have our five or six discs that we break out. And it is not Christmas until we put, you know, the, the Christmas Rat Pack CD on. Yeah. But, you know, these are people who obsess about finding these rare gems of like you know christmas albums that were given to dunlop employees instead <laughs> of a instead of a bonus these, this is uh, the, the next movie we talk about, I'll say this is true of as well, that both these films have music that's entirely sourced from other things. 
but the of two movies that they need to put out a soundtrack you can buy for. Yeah. Because, wow, this is so good. Uh, songs like Close Your Mouth, It's Christmas. Santa Claus was a, back, uh, a black man. <laughs> Just like, wow, you can see why some of these weren't as, didn't really sell that well, even though they're great little songs. Yeah. Um I just and it, the whole thing is kind of heartwarming at the same time. These I mean, guys have these honest to god. Just I mean, it's a hobby. What if this is people? If they, if this was people collecting Batman stuff, you wouldn't even blink an eye. But they're collecting Christmas music. It's it's kind of adorable, and they do genuinely find some stuff that we should be thankful to them that they exist for. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion about less about individual artists, although there is some of that but more about what these songs mean to people. And a lot of discussion about, you know, people managing to find Christmas references to that are culturally relevant to them. So there is a lot about the African-American experience of, oh, yeah. of, of, of Christmas, that it's not going to be... You know, if you, if you live in, in Chicago in the, in the 60s, then those nice Christmas cards of, you know, wooded areas with, uh, you know... Santa on a sleigh doesn't mean anything to you. Right, It's like, right. how do you redefine that experience? And a lot of it is done through music or, and, you know, Mexican, getting, or Mexican uh, uh, Christmas songs. Yes. Again, all this stuff that you just go, at the end of the day, it's the sa- it comes down to the same thing. It's telling a story that makes you feel happy. And it, it is about the great, you know, Christmas songs has the great dirty secret of music. As I point <laughs> out at the beginning, it's like half of the best-selling songs of all time are Christmas songs. True. Screw you guys. You all secretly love this stuff. I, there was this one thing in here that somebody says that I thought was the best idea ever. David Bowie and Bing Crosby, a long time ago, and Bowie was just a little tyke, starting off in the music biz, did a music like music video as it was in in the seventies where they did three a uh, little drummer boy together where yep. it was presented Bing as the old like oh come on into my house young man what do you kids do for Christmas these days it is the fucking weirdest thing to see and you could tell that, that Bing Crosby has absolutely no idea who, who David, David Bowie is but at the same time it's kind of a classic it's yeah. a really great musical number they do together and that one of the guys in the film was like I would love more than anything if David Bowie hooked up with some new young guy today in music who he respects and does it where now he's the old time that would be cool I was like oh my god that should tell him and Jack White or something like that yeah. you know like odd love to see that <laughs> anyway this is great stuff really recommend this this is definitely i'll be surprised if there'll be another new christmas movie that i see this year that's going to top this one as far as my recommendations for stuff to watch on christmas yeah this is this is an absolute absolute gem uh going on next to another movie that's going to be very divisive as to who's going to like this and who's going to find this completely dull but I found it entrancing. Oh, yes. It was The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, a 2013... Or, to give it its proper uh, uh, title in French, uh, L'étrange couleur des larmes de ton corps. Oh, why, thank you. Merci. It's Europe, where the history is from. Yay! Um, and did you notice that the very last thing, when it flashes uh, the credits, it shows the end, the title, real fast, except it says... Fears, not tears, at the, ah. at the end. I mean, assuming they didn't fuck up the subtitles. Ah. I wonder if that was the case, or I didn't go back and double-check with the French word. But anyway, um, this is a giallo film for people who are 
well, really into the style of Giallo. Oh, and then some... Because it's not really what you'd call a narrative film. I mean, there's a story there that you, that you have to work to decipher. Yeah. Um, or but you this have to is... work hard to decipher. This is not a, a, a sit back with a six-pack and, you know, feel free to play on your phone while you're watching no, this, this film. No, this is like as if... Like Alejandro Jodorowsky decided he was a huge fan of Giallo in the 70s, wrote a script for it, and then was directed by Suspiria era, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, you know, the guy who did Suspiria. Yeah. I'm forgetting his name. You know his name. I do. What's his name? God damn it. <laughs> Dario Argento. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, you you should have seen the me. look on his face then. It was lovely. Uh, that was my Christmas gift to myself. Honestly, this is like as a person who like was first attracted to Giallo for just the the choice of colors and the odd shots and the magnificent set dressing. Holy shit. This is a wet dream of a film yeah. in that context. I mean, holy shit. It's so gorgeous. Um it is very slow moving. It's not clear if anything you're seeing is really what you're seeing. And by the end, you'll probably be like I'm not entirely sure what happened in that movie, but as a sort of expressionistic type horror, which it very much is a very giallo horror, it's bloody. Oh, yeah. I found this to be kind of magnificent. This is uh, the uh, follow-up to Amer uh, by Hélène Caté and uh, Bruno Fazzani. It's their second, uh, their second feature together. This really is just... It's beyond an experiment. I mean, this is... is it's not just Giallo either. No. It's like, it's not just an experimental film. It's not just Giallo. It's kind of become something new. Yeah. You know? In the way that it's edited, especially. It's, it's entrancing. Yeah. And there's stuff that happens, and it's like, this is, you know, there are scenes which are internally contradictory that will rewind and replay with a character coming from a different angle and then seeing themselves. And stuff like this happens all the time. The basic idea is that there is a... Um, uh, a man, uh, Klaus Tang, who comes home and finds that his uh, his wife has disappeared, and then strange things start happening in the neighboring apartment, uh, which pretty much looks like the witch house from Suspiria. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. It's like everywhere he goes, he like is asking neighbors, Do you, "Have you seen my wife?" And they all have a story to tell that the movie will then go to, and we see their story of their own loss of someone in their life who just mysteriously disappeared. And that's the film for a while. Yeah. And then it becomes more of a, in in its way, a traditional giallo as a cop gets involved and we start trying to piece together as best we can. Well, who is the killer? Is it maybe the cop? Is it maybe the guy's the killer and doesn't realize it himself? Is it one of these characters we saw Was earlier? anybody murdered the, Was murdered anyone at murdered all? at all? Yeah. yeah. Or are these all hallucinations or dreams this guy is having? I mean, it's not the sort of film you can judge on a narrative level. There's enough of a plot to figure out the basics of what's going on, but it's not about that. This is about sitting in a darkened room with a big screen and the volume turned up loud because it's a very audio efficient, like very audio effective film. There's yeah. as much brilliant, neat stuff going on with the audio as there is with the visual stuff in here to just let it to just kind of experience. And either that's going to be your sort of thing or, Oh my God, it so totally isn't. Yeah. And I think if you say, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Suspiria and uh, deep red and films like that, that this is something you should at least give a try to, because this is made for you. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's but a I, love letter in its own way to those films while a, still being something different. Huge credit to uh, cinematographer Manuel de Cos, uh and oh, editor yeah. Bernard Beats. Oh, my God. What uh, a like, major the achievement. editing of this is just, it, you know, you could dissect every single scene just to see how it's put together a thousand times. And there, there are, there's this huge set piece in the middle. Because a lot of it is like stuff will, will reappear and, you know, scenes will flip back on themselves. A lot of that. But there's this one and it felt like it was half an hour long because it was so engrossing. Uh, you, know, and, you know, it's probably like five minutes, but it feels like it goes on forever. Not in a bad way, but just because you're so, so in there. Of this character walking into an apartment and then walking back into the apartment and walking back into the apartment. Right. And there's there's color code changes, which you know you you ha- you know just dissecting what the different colors mean alone, that is an intellectual challenge. This is this is uh, a film that if you like it on the first viewing, you're going to come back to because you're going to want to unpack this. Film. Oh yeah, there's so much going on here, even towards the end where, like as I mentioned, Jodorowsky. There's some very like. Uh, human body parts as represented by bloody exit wounds yes. <laughs> type of stuff that is very disturbing but so very like okay what does that mean though yeah <laughs> you know? I mean that's the thing there's, I'm there's not sure lot. it's supposed to mean anything that's but the thing. it's there's interesting some stuff to watch. which is just just you know it, it is you know image with, imbued with meaning as, as visual metaphor but there's a lot of other stuff where it's just like you know, it does what Jalo does of just going. This is beautiful. It's, just appreciate this weird, strange, impressionistic image, just for what it is. It's, I, I had another way of like com- I like compare. I know people. Some critics hate that when people compare. And it's like this person did this, but I find them fun and touchstones for people to get started with thinking about it. And the other alternate one I thought of it's Dario Argento had a nightmare after watching Roman Polanski's The Tenant. Yes. <laughs> and what it would look like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, fit, it hits on so many tropes, and I think it's a, it's, it proves that the genre isn't dead. Oh, you yeah. You can still do something oh interesting my God, and exciting. So, oh, and like I mentioned before, I was going to say two movies, the second movie with a soundtrack that's all other sourced material that was not written for this movie but taken from other films oh my god, I want the soundtrack to this movie. It's all, I mean, like, if you love the stuff by Goblin and that sort of thing, this is going to just blow you away how great the soundtrack is. And it's all sourced from, oh my, I've never fucking even heard of that little giallo and horror films from, like, the 50s and 60s and 70s. I have, uh, you know, rarely been so entranced by a film and rarely gone, the fuck so much in it. I mean, I think the only other film I've seen in the past couple of years, um that has uh, you know, really pushed kind of the love of another genre so far. Mm. It was actually, again, it was, a, it was a kind of giallo homage, which was Barbarian Sound Studio. Right. Which, again... Which I, you liked a lot more than I, I did. I love that Because that was I doing can, more I stuff with read. audio, I thought, than I did with visual. But. Yeah, but, I, but the visuals, I think, are fantastic in it as well. But the audio is just mind-blowing on that. But there's yeah. actually a, an actual giallo out this week. I'm sorry? Was it, we do have a giallo on the list this week. We do, in fact. And Which that, you were lucky that, enough to avoid. <laughs> that giallo I did not get to see. They didn't even offer it to me. Uh, is Slaughter Hotel. Yeah! Uh, 1971 Fernando de Leo film. Not known to be one of the masters of the form. Holy hell, this is a weird little film. Well, yeah, it's got Klaus Kinski as the lead. So what the uh, hell do you expect? It ha- no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. It has Klaus Kinski as the romantic lead. Oh, my God. 
that was a bit of a miscalculation. This is, this is, you know. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Fernando de Leo. Yeah. Who's mainly known for all his bloody police films. Yes. And there have been several collections of his stuff, which apparently he was well known and pretty well liked for those police films. But oh, no, I mean, his 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 cop stuff his his kind of bloody mafia stuff is, yeah. is actually pretty good. But not here so much he, the Slaughter Hotel. Though. Yeah. He here he really tries to do a psychological giallo. Oh wow! It does not work. Hmm. It's kind of, but it's it's so far off base that it's kind of an interesting car crash. Um, it's set in a an old castle which has now become the world's worst uh, mental institute. Okay, <laughs> uh, which seems to specialize in um, uh, attractive women in their thirties. Wait, don't they all? Oh, no, this one is like... Who, who seem to spend their time wandering around in cocktail dresses? <laughs> um, even though, like, a, you know, there's a couple of them who are there for suicidal urges, uh, a couple of them who have clear homicidal urges, and in fact, at one point, one of them tries to beat an attendant to death. So what do they do? They leave all the old medieval weapons around the house. Okay, from, as you do. Including did. a working Iron Maiden. Okay, so, now, come on, Richard. Now, this was experimental psychology at that yeah, point. They were trying it, it, new things. You didn't know like it was going to work. Therapy, exactly. No. Right? Uh, and Klaus Kinski plays the head of the Institute, uh, who is kind of not sure whether he wants to sleep with one of the uh, one of the guests. You know, and, they, and there's this mysterious figure wandering around in a cape, occasionally killing people. Uh, the Sounds first, like a lot of places I work. Yeah, the first half of this is kind of a little bit bloody. It's kind of a low-key giallo. And then the last half, they clearly went, oh. Last half or last act? La- last half. Okay. This does not have a conventional act structure. It does okay. not have that kind of But you're saying 50% control. of the movie goes crazy. No, 50% of the movie, they just suddenly go, oh, yeah, we've really kind of teased a bit with, you know, these you know these women wandering around in, in cocktail dresses okay let's have some hardcore lesbian and masturbation scenes ah uh, including some uh, what is beautifully described in the insert booklet as stunt labia um, because one of the characters I don't think she knew she was filming that kind of scene and they have some pretty clear insert shots <laughs> that you're going ha um it also tries to it tries to tease the idea that Klaus Kinski is going to be the killer, but apart you know when you see him and you realise that the killer is clearly about a foot taller than Klaus Kinski and has a different haircut, so it's clearly not him. They throw a lot of red herrings in there. There is a reasonable amount of gore. It's a giallo. There is a lot more sex than you are kind of expecting. But then you know, this weird thing they go Kino Lorber who put this out. They've been trying to put some giallo stuff out. And it tends to have been the stuff that is a little bit more on the hardcore side yeah. than well, the, the most of the other stuff. Just, I mean, they put out Blue Movie, which we both hated yeah. recently. Um, yeah, oh and, my god. Oh, that was that. a terrible film. I think to some degree, Kino, I mean, a very specific degree, Kino has always been about uh, cinema for completists of genre. Mm. And they do get a hold of some stuff that's wonderful. That they put out, but they also like try and fill in all the gaps, and I'm grateful that somebody's doing that. Yeah, because there are genres that I would certainly like to have every last thing that exists of it, or actors I want everything they ever put out. But <laughs> you got to be one of those guys. What's really what's most interesting is, is this is a, a really fascinating example of 
when uh, English dubs go wrong. Yeah. Because it has both the English dub and the Italian, the original Italian, and it has English subtitles if you want to watch the Italian. Most English dubs do go wrong, for the record. Well, what's really fascinating is that how many lines were rewritten that completely change character motivation from the Italian? And there's two characters who basically end up being... You're looking like complete dicks in the English language version. The number one reason and rather nice in the, in the, in the original version. The number one reason why people don't understand who choose to watch dub versions, why it's such a sin, is because that happens all the time. Yeah. More common than not to change lines where whole situations mean something completely different because the English guy thought it, who was writing the sub, uh, the, who was uh, had written the dubs for the actors, thought it made more sense this way, or it matched up with their mouth movements better, or whatever. It's, or they just couldn't be bothered to actually translate it. Yeah, exactly. Which is... I, I mean, I, don't, there's a whole series of problems that subtitles have sometimes, too. No question. Typos. But just proofread it. I fr- dear, dear filmmakers... I'm pretty sure the term English evolved out of watching Hong Kong movies with just subtitles that they barely put them together or, with, with that. With, yeah, and it, what really bugs me is when I go to film festivals, and it's a filmmaker who I know has done a lot of work at... at, at uh, that showed at international film festivals and they have friends in other countries how hard would it be to go hey can guys you can out? you just check that this is okay uh, and you, just correct the typos you probably know this but I always thought it was amusing that the whole do not want meme online yeah. usually associated with lolcats came from a Japanese bootleg of uh, Revenge of the Sith uh-huh. where instead of having Darth Vader say no it said do not want (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is not Slaughter Hotel is not a superior genre if you're a Klaus Kinski fan uh, it's it's fascinating if only for the fact that neither in the English dub nor in the original Italian is it Klaus Kinski's voice (laughs) which Mm. is even weirder it's like you hire Klaus Kinski you don't let him kill anybody, and you don't even let him ha- do his own creepy enunciation of the lines. What's is the point of getting such him... such a weird, weird decision. What's the point of getting Klaus Kinski without getting him to be an actor? I mean, yeah. he's, like, not good for anything else on the planet. That's all he's good for. Yeah. And even then, it's a dangerous prospect. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, not a major giallo, but kind of interesting, because I think it was really the only actual full-blown giallo that uh, Kinski ever did. Oh, interesting. I don't think he ever really did another one. I can't. Like I know he was in a lot of really obscure little films, but I can't think of one offhand that's yeah. clearly so it's, Giallo. This is kind of an oddity. It's not great. Well, the other Kino, which is certainly has more of a important note in history that came out this uh, this week, is the Quatermass experience. Quatermass. Quatermass? Quatermass. Okay, see, for the longest time I was saying Quatermass because I was just looking at it and my eyes were filling in the gap with a more recognizable word. But um, either way, it's spelled like nothing else. Yep. So um, this is the one spelled with an X for experiment because it is the film version, the first film version, mind you, uh, originally uh, released in the United States as The Creeping Unknown. Do you know why it's called The Quatermass Experiment with an X but no E? I I did, but I can't remember. Because uh, they realized that they were definitely going to get an X certificate in oh, the UK. Yeah, yeah. So they just went, well, let's beat them to the punch and just put X in really big letters. And that is significant because of the studio that put this out. Yes. Hammer Studios, who before was a little, like, uh, they, they did production real briefly early and uh, on the, totally on their own. Where they actually uh, won a BAFTA yeah. for Best Film, but then the bottom fell out of the market and they... 
like found themselves in bankruptcy were bought up basically by a distributor where they were making a bunch of just quickies, you know, cheap genre stuff. Started to learn to do that. Uh, the quarter mask experiment. Quarter? Did I say that right? Quater. Quater mask experiment. Are you sure it's not just your accent? No. <laughs> came out Things ni- like crater, but take the but but. Fair enough. Uh, came out in 1955, and that whole indulgence of saying, you know what, we do genre, we know we're going to get a R, a, you know, the equivalent of an R rating anyway, let's exploit that and push it as far as we can. And the sheer amount of success, which was massive, that came out of this release, informed the entire direction that Hammer Films would go for the rest of their legendary run, going on to make Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and people like that major stars for playing Dracula and Frankenstein and The Mummy and what have you. Um, This film, in a non-intentional way, changed the course of film history. Yeah, And this, uh, it's actually a a film adaptation of a 1953 four-part BBC science fiction series. Yes. Where they went... Well, let's rebuild it for the American market. Spelled with an E. Yeah. Uh, well, they rebuilt it for the American market. Uh, the sole way they they uh, they did this was by having Brian Donlevy uh, <laughs> cast as you know uh, Professor Quatermass, who is otherwise the definitive British a- academic. Uh, so it was a very odd decision to cast an American actor uh, in the part, but it really was. Well, we need a kind of recognisable American name in here. The the basic plot is that. Britain sends a rocket into space with three guys in it. Only one of them returns. There's something obviously clearly wrong with him. Um, and then you suddenly start to discover he's been mutated by some unknown force in space uh, and is absorbing living matter. And it's, well, how do you stop him? How do you deal with this? He's which uncontrollably could well... absorbing stuff. Yeah. Uh, much to his personal, uh, uh, you know, pain. I mean, there's, there's the great thing about the character is he realizes he's becoming a monster, but there's nothing he can do about it. Right. Um, and it's really, it's, it's kind of very much a uh, almost a, a science fiction police procedural as they try and work <laughs> yeah. out, you know, where he's going, what he's trying to do next. It has a very slow burn, creepy feel to it. Um, and then, unlike a lot of British films at the time. It actually has a monster reveal. It does. Uh, it's incredible. Which was also key to what Hammer yeah. ended up doing that was taking horror to its next level. On from what Universal was doing before, that nobody really knew what to do in the 40s. Yeah. Everyone's like, um, more sequels? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in the 50s, the atomic horror age suddenly we're getting more graphic. We're getting space-based creatures. We're getting, you know, mutations and radioactivity. And this was so endemic to what everyone was caught up on that in, in at this time. You know? Now this is basically a... a it, it's kind of a... On the cusp between, you know, science, space horror, and Lovecraft. And there's a yeah. Lovecraftian element to it. There's, you know, there's almost... You know, it, it's almost... There's an a, unlicensed remake of the uh, adaptation of the color out of space in some a, way. There's a lot of fan fiction of this of the Quatermass uh, uh, Qu- 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 experiment that does tie it directly back into Lovecraft. That I, there may have even been official release stuff. This has been remade or expanded 
probably innumerable amounts of times. There's probably even a Doctor Who episode about it. I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> uh, the British loved the crap out of this. Uh, well, I mean, there's a on this disc. There's actually an extra with uh, John Carpenter talking about how much of an influence it was on his work. Oh yeah, you clearly know, on this, the thing. You, oh, clearly on the thing. But you know, you could also see the influence on things like Alien. Yeah. You know, this is an Im- immensely important piece of science fiction history that isn't necessarily as well-known in America. Well, and it's not even something I would necessarily say even holds up as a great film, as, per se, at least against some of its compatriots at the time. But you can 100% see why this was a, a, a big jump ahead of what a lot of people were doing at the time and was bringing stuff into a new direction and was a massive effect on people who were growing up in the 50s who found this genuinely really frightening. And sadly, uh, this, uh, I think two of the episodes of the original BBC series are missing. Uh, They've just gone AWOL. So this is the only version of the story you will ever... Uh, they'll probably find them eventually. They, yeah. You know, they just found that first ever Mickey Mouse uh, Christmas cartoon. Really? Yeah, or Oswald the rabbit yeah. as it were but they just found it in like in Antarctica <laughs> ironically enough <laughs> I'm not surprised yeah. but I mean you know Quatermass goes on to be uh, kind of a Antarctica. cottage industry in later years oh, totally. you have Quatermass 2 you have uh, Quatermass and the Pit which is probably actually the best I think story. that's the best one yeah uh, but this is you know this is a landmark piece of, of science fiction cinema because it is so influential on so many people I found out and about it, this and, uh, and it is creepy I found out about this originally from the the great Jason Murphy formerly of Rage Select it was hey. like it's not I'm not telling you this is going to change your life I'm just saying if you're going to be serious about watching horror you really should know something about this movie by now. And there is a great sequence where um, the astronaut who's broken out and is kind of wandering through and trying not to consume people because there's just enough of a glimmer of humanity left. He's like, I- I'm going to try not to do that. <laughs> and he finds himself in a zoo. And that is a, that is one of my favorite uh, British horror sequences from this era. I think they, it's incredibly effective because yeah. all the animals start going wild because they know there's something wrong. And a lot of other films have pretty much seriously ripped that off over the years. And they've given this a, a really decent amount of bonus features. Yeah. Something you don't always see in the Kino releases. Sometimes. A lot of times it's bare bones. This one actually has a commentary with the original director, Val Gast. Holy yep. shit. Uh, interview with John Carpenter, as you said, from reality with uh, to fiction with Val Gast, uh, going through the history of how it got to being a movie basically uh comparing the version versions an interview another interview with guest casual interview uh, uh trailers from hell from director ernest dickerson who highlights the the history of this um an alternative main title opening i mean this is a solid set for like like i said you may you're not going to see this and think it's the greatest horror movie of its time but it's a really important film in the history of horror there's no denying and I th- that. yeah i think it it stands up surprisingly well. It does that. You know, you put it up with something like Night of the Demon. You know, you get... Eh, and it fits bit, in, it's not as good as Night that, but Demon. it fits into that, that era incredibly well. Mm. You can see the importance of it. Fair enough. All right. Well, this isn't horror, but it certainly got its freaky points. We're going back to the present day with uh, the 2014 release of Calvary. Yep. Uh, not a war film, despite how it sounds. Different word. <laughs> uh, this is the second film, I believe it is, from the Irish director John Michael O'Donough. McDonough. 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 Get in here. <laughs> um, who? Uh, and what the hell was the name of his first film? Though? Oh, The Guard. Yes. Uh, that also starred Brendan Gleeson in the lead. The Guard was one of my favorite movies of the year it came out. I believe that was 2012 when yep. it came out. 
just the most irreverent, hysterical little crime comedy I'd seen I don't know how long. Have you seen The Guard? Yes. Oh my god, I love it to pieces. It's a glorious film. So glorious. Calvary, while still a very funny film in a lot of ways, is him trying to do something more serious, more yeah. meaningful, and I think that maybe the way he did it was very off-putting in a traditional structure sort of way to a lot of people. Oh, yes. Because I have friends whose opinions I usually come, you know, we tend to agree with, who were like, yeah, I just did not care for that at all. And I personally was kind of in love with this movie. Yeah. Um, I think this is a beautiful little story that is going to upset you because it's supposed to. Um, uh, Brendan Gleeson here plays a very nice man who probably didn't used to be a very nice man, but has joined the priesthood in a tiny little Irish town, coastal town. And in the beginning, we see that someone who he doesn't know he is in the confession says that he was abused by a priest, not this father, but a different priest. But because that priest is now dead in the following week, next Sunday, a week from then, he's going to kill this priest as his act of revenge. uh, Because, he knows he's a good priest and it will be even worse for the Catholic church than murdering a bad priest. Okay. Odd scenario to be in, in any case. And this is kind of the struggle of this priest to remain a good man through this scenario as he's trying to go about his daily duties in a town that's impoverished, that is bitter with the church itself uh, and everything it represents and trying to do good in the face of all this, in the face of utter cynicism, and still trying to piece together who maybe this person might be that's going to kill him. Yeah. Um, rounded out by a phenomenal cast around him of just terrific British actors like Chris O'Dowd, Kelly Riley, uh, 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 oh God, what's the M. M. Emmett Walsh, not British, but great. Dom Hall Gleason, uh, what's the, uh, Aiden Gillen, who is my favorite character actor in this, and maybe my favorite British character actor right now. Talk about a great male Doctor Who mm-hmm. actor possibility. Right there. Yep. <laughs> um, Dylan Moran walking away with a great performance in this game. He is so good in this. Um, it's There's so much to like about this film that I don't know. Is it just, do you think, that it just gets too dark towards the end that people I, don't like? I think like? It's, it's actually, in, it's dark all the way through. It's all, yeah, mean, it's, it, but it, it definitely takes less, like, it's it's flirting much more with the comic tone in the first three quarters of it than it is in the last quarter, which goes almost completely bleak. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic idea is is tackling the question of how do priests who were not part of the the abuse scandal had nothing to do with it. Yeah. It was nothing to do with their their view of the church, what they did personally. What is their responsibility and culpability for, you know, these hideous crimes that were done? And, and you know, and the, and the scale of the Irish abuse stuff, it's, it's, I don't think it's ever going to be it's, really... It's, the scale is incredible. With. Oh, it's... It was the, a, the degree to which it was... There's no amount of apology can make up for that. And and this these there are these discussions and I think you know very deep and meaningful discussions uh, about kind of corporate responsibility as opposed to individual responsibility because that you know Dylan Moran's character is this uh, you know banker who's made a fortune and and is not a very nice person and yeah. there's this discussion between him and Brendan Gleeson about well 
you know, you represent everything that is wrong with greed. And you're like, I'm not everything that's wrong with greed. I'm greedy, but I'm not the worst thing that ever happened. And you're a priest, an Irish priest in a time of abuse. You know, who's, who's worse? And there's this incredible subtext about personal and greater responsibility, which is what this film is really about. And it is really carried by A, a phenomenal cast, but B, Brendan Gleeson. If he doesn't get nominated for an Oscar this year, I will be appalled. He's not going to. Well, it's final proof that the Oscars are just bullshit. Has the BAFTAs already happened? Uh, No, it hasn't happened yet. So, if anything, we can hope for a BAFTA for Because he's so good. He's always been, like, a great actor. I, I want him and Call Meanie to play brothers in a road trip comedy, don't you? Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier. <laughs> you know, if they did a dark, gritty remake of uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, <laughs> Brendan Gleeson we're, uh, as Miles O'Brien would be perfect. What's the one with the criminals? Uh, the, the classic movie, the criminals are chained to each other and have to like. Go, oh, uh, yeah. there's been uh, a remake of it already, but that, but set in Ireland and with those two. Yeah, that would be just <laughs> just beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, and he is. I, yeah, I, he, he has this cragginess, but this real sense of that he is. He's trying to do absolutely everything that is good, and, and this leads him to a very, a, a very interesting place. Like, what is his responsibility? Right. You know, as somebody who believes in contrition, um, it asks some fascinating questions yeah. there. And even coming to this as an agnostic, which I, I don't, you know, I some people question me on the like, I don't understand why you liked his character so much. He's a Catholic priest with a flawed background. I'm like. Because he genuinely is trying to be a good man. And how does someone, in the context of not just his own background, but of the church itself, be a good man in the midst of all of that, you know, with everyone being angry at you? How do you push past that? I mean, it's this moral, there's these moral questions going on that isn't it important to still be a good man even when no one wants you to be? Yeah. Isn't, doesn't that make it even more important to continue being a good man? I, I found as a secular humanist this to be one of the most fascinating movies I've ever seen on that topic. And it looks beautiful as well. I mean, it, it takes these areas of craggy island. Yeah. Um, sorry, this, which is an in-joke there. If you ever watched a great, uh, a great British, uh, Irish-British co-production sitcom called Father Ted. Oh, yes. Um, it's been a while, but... <laughs> Ted. 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 Um, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, it's amazingly sharp. You know, this, this is really... Uh, again, this is a really strong contender for a very unconventional pick of the week, but, yeah. uh, you know, this... You know, Obviously, as I discovered, much to my surprise, not everyone's cup of tea, um, or Guinness, as the case may be, it's, I, I think it, it is a little dark for some people. Um, I think it's uh, very unconventional while feeling like quite a conventional narrative. I think that's maybe the thing, that it doesn't it doesn't wear its oddity on its sleeve. And so you come in and you think, well, this is kind of a conventional, you know, uh, oh, priest having a moral quandary movie. And it's like, no, the first thing it sets you up with is, is almost like a Dario Faux introduction i mean this is this is uh bleak and clever um and you know it's it's the polar opposite of jingle bell rocks as, as yeah. in terms of good to uh, good time movies but it does ask some really interesting questions 
and, and does it's never it in a way dull. that is really fascinating because the performances are so cool. Listen, I, w- I want to emphasize: never dull and genuinely no. funny at parts with terrific, engaging performances that you don't expect. No. Type. I mean, it's almost like you take one of those endless little town in Ireland feel-good comedies where everybody in town is quirky in their own way and made it not a feel-good comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is the same town that Waking Ned Divine took place in, but like, something horrible the, oh, is going on. the other person who's seen Waking Ned Divine? <laughs> no, I knew it wasn't just That was me. a huge hit in America. Was it? Yeah, that was wow, a big hit. It, it tanked in the UK. Did it really? I loved it, but it, like nobody saw it. Oh, no, that was like, in indie theaters, that was as big as the, the, the Full Monty. That was a huge deal. Really? Yeah, that was a big deal. I am legitimately shocked. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the UK it was like, oh, it's another fucking cute Irish film about old old blokes with their bollocks out in public. No, next, next. It doesn't it next. feel like it could be that same it, fucking it town? It that real feel. And there's also a, a, a closing montage which will make you really regret liking um, uh, Donnie Darko so much because right. it does the same thing, but it doesn't feel it has to hit you over the head with with some with a lousy piece of soundtracking. I like that soundtracking. That's <sighs> Sorry, I'm a I'm a big Donnie Darko fan. I am as well, but that's a little bit that bit's like a little on the nose. The, uh, well, you're right. That the very very end is possibly. Although the, that's one of those examples people always ask: what director's cuts aren't as good as the original cut? Uh-huh. Donnie Darko. <laughs> what follow-ups aren't as good as somebody's somebody's debut film? Donnie Darko. Southland Tales. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Southland Tales. Ooh, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant do- like sequels. I was like S Darko. No, nope. not so good. Anyway, let's move on. Yes, really, really recommend Calvary from both of us. A film I'm afraid that was probably more popular than Calvary in indie circles, but I don't think we can recommend as highly, is Frank. And I think one of the reasons, maybe it was more so popular here because it was a South by South. It it, it was at South by Southwest, and part of it was filmed at South by Southwest as a South however, by Southwest however, thing. Most, most of the sequences at South by Southwest seem to have been filmed at a uh, convention center in Albuquerque, as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, no, there were sequences cool. that were actually that were clearly at South by. And there were but, other sequences which were clearly not, at a, a strip mall in Albuquerque. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Fair enough. Um... This is another Irish film, a comedy drama, directed by Larry Abramson, starring once again Don Hall Gleason, here playing the lead of a guy who just wants to be a musician but hasn't really found his voice. He's a keyboardist, wants to write songs, doesn't quite know how to write songs, quite frankly, or any good one, quite frankly. Uh, well, uh, he has found his voice. He just doesn't realize that his voice is, is you know, flat and uh, pointless. True. Yeah. Um, and he meets up with this group of people that he sees that are coming to town, this band whose name is near unpronounceable, so I'm just not even going to, intentionally so, so yeah. I'm not even going to try uh, to tell you that. Uh, what they're called, led by this guy named Frank, which, of course, is, is famously played by Michael Fassbender wearing this giant head. Um, and they're Art Nouveau-type band to an irritating extent who uh, hire him because their previous keyboardist basically goes insane and wanders off into the, the ocean. And out of desperation, like, okay, fine, we're going out in the mountains, though, to record, so, you know, you're going with us. So he goes out with them to record, finds out that he thinks it's going to be the weekend, turns out they're supposed to be there for months. It's a, a series of stories of them, nobody's running the asylum scenarios with the one sane guy there who's dealing with a bunch of people trying to make art who are themselves kind of insane. Um, and 
his own dreams of what he wants to do in music, at least in the context of the film, poisoning ultimately these dreams of these people who may or may not be creating real art themselves. Or may just be insane. Or may just be insane. I mean, it's a, it reminds me there's an old, I want, uh, I want to say Italian comedy where the, uh, a guy comes to the town and the inmates of an asylum have taken over the entire town literally. And he doesn't know it. And he's trying to like relate to everyone and everyone seems crazy and he can't figure it out. And the people in the asylum are the actual who are there are the people who used to run the town. And it kind of reminded me of that in a weird sort of way. I think if I have a problem with this, it's just there's something kind of ugh, I hate using this word, but pretentious about wanting us to, to sending this message message about highlight how like if you go into music with an eye to commerce, then you've ruined it already. Let me explain why I have a real fucking issue with this film. <laughs> and Chris just took a big drink there, which may be sensible. Mm, um, here we go. Strap in. For our American listeners, imagine if somebody made a film about a guy who does a kind of wacky kids TV show that is really successful with adults... And he wears kind of weird suits and talks in a kind of really shrill way. And his first name is Pee Wee. <laughs> but he's not Pee Wee Herman. And the film doesn't expect you to think of him as Pee Wee Herman. This is what this film does. Oh, I see. Because you have a real, like, real life relationship in your head to the guy who this was obviously very inspired this by, is based, Frank Sidebottom. based on a on a British performer called Frank Sidebottom. Yeah. Who was extremely successful. Yeah. You know, he was kind of this weird outsider artist. He had a TV show. He put out records. He was, you know, a cult he was, in, he was indie successful. He was indie He was successful. not what I would say extremely he successful. He wasn't extremely successful, like, for what he did. For what he did. Which was kind of weird. It was pretty much him in the residence. Yeah, kind of weird. <laughs> and but it was, you know, it was kind of like, everybody in the UK knew who Frank Sidebottom is. Right. And you kind of, and the head that, um... Uh, the, the character in this film called Frank wears. Yeah, this it's fake the, it's paper mache head. head. It, it's the, it's, it's the, the exact head. But you're not supposed to, like, associate them. Yeah, I don't understand them. I mean, clearly it's inspired by him, but they're like, oh, no, but it's also inspired by Daniel Johnson and Captain Beefheart. I'm like, well, then you shouldn't have used the exact same yeah. head. and that's the thing. I mean, it's expecting you to make that kind of jump. And as somebody who grew up and, uh, you know, watching this stuff, went to college when he was, when, when he was you know, at, at the height of his success and was on TV pretty constantly, I'm like, well, do fucking Frank Sidebottom then. Do the fucking story. Yeah, it's it like putting, sounds it's, like he it's had like, a pretty interesting story. It's like anyway. putting you know circular ears on a cartoon mouse and not expecting me to call him Mickey. It's it's really <laughs> frustrating. And the thing is that this is based on on John Ronson's book about his time when he was you know when he when he worked with Frank Sidebottom. Yeah, and, and then you completely think... throw all of that shit out the window. And I'm like, well, why? What is what is this thing then? What is, what is this film trying to be? Well, I mean, what is obviously it not about? because it's not about Frank Sidebottom. Yeah. Take the fucking hat off, Cha you know, take the helmet off. This doesn't make it. it, it it's so frustrating. I don't see. I don't have that problem because I never even yeah. heard of this guy before yeah. this. But I found it was just kind of. I hate that sort of that context of like this guy who's like, hey, I don't 
I so I posted what we were doing on YouTube. What's the problem? And that corrupting people and ultimately being a bad thing of trying to get popular because of it was looked at as like, oh, you just don't understand art. Yeah. And I found that to be kind of shameful, quite frankly, and oh, so Austin hipster for people to respond as strongly as they did to it. No, it's only art if no one sees it or likes it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, fuck you. I mean, what, what <laughs> saves this film, because I mean, everything else about it is pretty damn prosaic. I mean, there's some funny moments, but uh, what saves it? Uh, Strong performances. Fassbender is great in this. Scoot McNary. Once me, again, let me, let unrecognizable. Me Donald Gleason, you know, not afraid to make himself really unpleasant and weaselly. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who basically <laughs> just chews the scenery. Uh, and if they ever do a remake of uh, uh, Young Frankenstein, I expect her to be coming down the stairs screaming, playing a violin. Uh, the, the best thing about this by far is Scoot McNary as the band's manager, who is the guy who he you know there's kind of a, a, a an echo of. Um, I love that you uh, called him kind of Weasley, and he played Bill Weasley yeah. in the Harry Potter uh, film. There's, there's Another an tie back to the previous film. Yep, he's Brendan Gleeson's son. Yep, sorry, but you know, Donald Gleeson, you know, he his character is an earlier is is basically Scoot McNary's character but Scoot McNary realized like he's never going to be as good as Frank because Frank is actually like genuinely creative and innovative and he it's about a guy who has realized his artistic limitations and he will always be in the shadow of this outsider genius and he has taken upon himself to be the guy that protects this outsider genius from the real world right and he doesn't have many scenes but there's a couple of them that are heart-rending. Uh, you know, he is, McNary is by far the best thing about this film. And that's often true, McNary. is such a oh, wonderful yeah. actor who is like the lone, Lon Chaney of today in that he's not wearing a lot of makeup. You just never fucking recognize him yeah. when you see him in something. No, he's, he's, um, he's wonderful. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal playing like, you know, uh, it's funny. I knew somebody just like this when I was growing up who's like, I'm so much more a part of this thing already than you, and you're not really welcome here, but I guess I'll put up with you, you little talentless shit. I knew somebody just like that when I was growing up, and I felt desperate for their she attention. She really felt like she should have been signed with a 4AD, with 4AD back here, back in the mid-80s. Right, exactly. She had that vibe. But she's great at it in this, and I think the performances are good. And in fact, I was really enjoying this until the third act, where they leave to go to South by Southwest to promote their band, and then I thought it just got kind of pretentious. Yeah. I was like, okay, what you ultimately want to say with this film is, I'm sorry, lame. But yeah. I was enjoying it up until that point. I Whereas wish I, I could just say. had I just had endless issues with it because I you know like I said I mean it 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 takes you know somebody's and they, you know the the major thing is that uh, the actual Frank Sidebottom is dead yeah so they could get away with this shit yeah that's what upsets me yeah I understand I that like, completely you know, there's something really you know and then them to go oh well there's Beefheart references and yeah. there's Daniel Johnson references like well, no, yeah but you put the fucking you put the fucking papier-mâché head if you had changed the really way the mask it. looked it would have been fine yeah um, or just never even showed his face yeah never showed his face at all although that yeah, becomes, which would have been more innovative you know that yeah. would have been really entertaining to like you know, never never show him all the True. way through the film um, this comes with a bunch of deleted scenes and a bunch of small featurettes about different aspects of the production that are passably EPK-ish yeah but I don't know. I say check it out for yourself if you don't 
you know, I don't have that same prejudice you did coming uh, into it, and, oh, I, I and which is my, understandable. Baggage, but, I would have know. felt the same way if if I had come from being familiar with that guy. I would have felt the exact same way. When, um, when I heard Michael Fassbender was making a uh, a, a Frank Sidebottom movie, I was genuinely genuinely excited, and then I got this shit. And it's instead. not that. And I'm like, this, what what the fuck are you making? Here? Well, is now time we reach the end of the show where we get to our favorite part and yours giveaway. And this week, boy, do we have a doozy for you. This is another film that possibly would have been up for my pick of the week because, boy, do I love that rare, really good Zomcom. And this is one that totally outdoes does its predecessor. Yeah. Dead Snow 2, Red vs. Dead, that makes the first film look like a not funny piece of shit by comparison. Well, I think the thing is that the first film was a zombie comedy that ha- was a zombie film that had some funny moments. Yes. This is a full-fledged zombie. This is in the, the more in the spirit of Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Yes. Totally. If it had anything that is like its spiritual successor, it's dead alive. And which surprised me because, like I said, yeah, the first one's more of a straight zombie film that has like parts that are absurd. This is absurd all the way through, even to the point of like the survivor from the previous one. Uh, we saw on the previous one towards the end, he lost his arm. Here, he's found unconscious in the snow, uh, brought to a doctor's office where they find another arm, which turns out to be the arm he lopped off one of the, the the head Nazi in the previous film, and they put that arm on him, which, of course, has a mind of its own, leading to lots of Evil Dead references as well. There, This film just wanted to have fun. Yeah. And be gory and nasty as hell while it's doing it, with a whole procession of very entertaining comedy actors even some oddly placed american actors who are in this yeah. martin Starr appears as like a zombie killer from america who flies over to help them with the situation who's very funny i loved the shit out of this thing uh, it's i mean it's completely bonkers it's yeah. the comedy is broad as all hell there's no subtle nuances at no all. uh uh, this edition also has... Uh, they did a very weird thing that was kind of done with a, a, a highly commercial eye. It involved... It, this This comes with the original version, uh, uh, Dot Snow 2. Yeah. Uh, Dot Snow 2. Uh, <laughs> Dot Snow 2. Dot Snow 2, Red vs. Dead. Um, they made the film in English and in... Uh, and they refilmed it. And, uh, in Norwegian. Um, and it's... You know, they basically would just do a, do a take, and then they go, oh, okay, now we do it in, the other, in another language. So it's very weird, because it is actually a completely new film. Yes. I mean, they don't reuse any of the footage. Um, but, you know, it's kind of odd watching it, that. I think, I actually, I, I slightly prefer watching it with the original Norwegian, uh, because there's a lot of the characters, you know, you, you can tell it's their second language. The American actors are still cast, still speaking in, uh, you know, speaking English. They're actually, very, I, I didn't like them quite as much the first time through as I did on the second time through because they were a little bit jarring because they are like, "Hey, we're ridiculously American," and they're ridiculously American in kind of a hilarious way, and they're they're super nerdy, yeah, uh, to the point that one of them turns up with uh, 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 Luke's uh, binoculars from uh, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, think- <laughs> they're like, "Where did you even?" those it's I, filled with silly references it's interesting that this was you know i didn't even realize till i got this there was an international version of this with the original you know uh language and that it was a bomb mm. back home like it made no money nobody went to see it and really? this has been kind of a hit at festivals overseas here in america had a huge response at fantastic fest when i saw it in other festivals because it's a genuinely funny film that probably like 
pays more homage to American sources of comedy horror than it does anywhere else. Yeah. And maybe that's why we're getting a better response to it here. I mean, it's a very American yeah. zombie company. And it was like, you know, this year Fantastic Fest produced two great ones, this and uh, Wormwood, which was also terrific. I think I, I, think I slightly prefer Wormwood because that is just utterly bonkers and, oh, it's so and, and does some really shithouse crazy <laughs> new things with the, with the Zomcom uh, format but this still manages to be really oh, no, fun is, all the way through uh, plus you've got a, a mad pitch battle between an army of, of resurrected uh, uh, Nazi zombies and an army of really angry looking uh, red army Russian zombies yeah like they say dead versus red <laughs> in kind of a you know, which is kind of a bit of a weird moment I think for a lot of um, American audience some American audiences because the, the the zombie Russians are the good guys, yeah. But which is a byproduct of, of Norwegian World War Two history. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, this is great fun. It's completely ridiculous. And this, talk about a this great. This is a six pint and a pizza. A great little package. Uh, there's a short film Armin, which I did not get a chance to watch by the same director, presumably. Which is actually very funny. Um, a, a, a breakdown of the film special effects. The comic book that's a prequel comic book to the entire thing that they gave out at the Fantastic Fest screening and now is as well included in here. An audio commentary by writer-director Tommy Wakora Wakola. This is Wirkola. a... Wirkola. This is a terrific Who was also responsible for Hansel and Gretel uh, Witch Hunters. He is, which is not so good. It's fun. Yeah. It's, da- it's, it's daffy fun. Yeah. Eh. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> uh, here, here's how you can win it, Richard. You had to say that while I was taking a drink. Sorry. Uh, okay. So, now you, you have need to take to a drink. Follow us on Twitter at one of us net. Um, and okay, you need to answer this question, um, and you need to include in your answer uh, the hashtag uh, Dead Snow Giveaway. Uh, now look, talking slow so I can think of something think of while something I'm because, speaking. Oh, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, <laughs> oh well. Oh. What? You, 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 you gotta pick something. Um, okay, this is basically a war zombie movie. Uh, what war would you like to see a movie made of featuring zombies? There you go. There and, we go. And Star Wars counts. Yes. <laughs> oh, but you well, have to no, be no, specific. We've had... Because we've had... We've had um, there's no Clone Wars zombie. No, there's Star Wars... Uh, well, one, there is actually in the Clone Wars. Is in, there? Yeah, there's actually some uh, basically... Resur- there's a lot of resurrection mm. stuff. Uh, but there is... A, they did a... Um, basically... It was it was a Star Wars horror with, with clone trooper zombies eating people. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Pretty, pretty gruesome, actually. Well, really entertaining. Either way, that's what you do. Yep. Tweet that to us, and we will pick several winners, because we have a couple different Blu-rays nice. of this, so aren't you lucky? Yep. And you should feel lucky, because this is a great little title. Uh, tune in again next week, where it will be myself and Brian reviewing the latest releases, and um, be sure to click on, of course, all the titles as usual. Buy your stuff through Amazon, through our links, because it helps us out a lot. And remember, subscriptions make wonderful Christmas movies. They do, indeed. Until next time, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review most of them. Merry Christmas!